So we're getting the jump cut early this week. This one's going at the start, by the way. We're going right at the start with this. Yeah, okay. we might. Yeah, we might as well, because um, it counts as half of what gets said during the rest of the show. Mm, I'm just glad we I'm just glad you're not going to hear any predictions later on because they've all been thrown into chaos now. It's just as well, really, isn't it? Because I don't think any of us predicted the COVID. No. <laughs> Which appears to be the winner of the Sake Grand Prix now that Lewis isn't taking part. I, well, it's definitely livened it up. Um, <laughs> yeah. So we're, we're now going to have. At least two driver changes, if not more, this weekend. Yes, so this, if if you have not been on Twitter in the last few hours or days or whenever it is you're listening to this, is because this morning it was announced that Lewis Hamilton has tested positive for coronavirus. So this means he's going to be isolating for at least 10 days under Bahraini regulations. Uh-huh. And he's going to miss the rest this weekend. No idea what's going to happen for Abu Dhabi next week. Yep. I'm assuming because of the F1 bubble, he'll need to uh, isolate for 10 days and then take another test, which proves to be negative to even stand a chance of racing in Sakia. Uh, not Sakia, Yas Marina. Yes. Sakia this weekend. Yes. It's been a, it's been a long day <laughs> and it's only half past two. Yeah, we'll, we'll manage. So yeah, so that then leads to wild speculation about who is going to be in that seat. Yeah. Um, Stoffel van Dorn is the official reserve driver. Esteban Gutierrez is as well, but he hasn't got the super licence anymore. We don't think. Ah, that's problematic. Um, He's got the points, but he hasn't done uh, enough mileage in an F1 car in the last three years. Oh, bollocks. Oh, well. (laughs) Sorry, Esteban. (laughs) He needs to do 300 kilometres. So, yeah, Stoffel van Dorn, current reserve driver, Mm -hmm. all fine, all good, right this minute. At the time of recording, he's going out for another 30 minutes practice in Formula E testing. Yes, this is in Valencia. Um, it was always planned that after this test he would go to Bahrain and just be floating around as reserve driver for the weekend. But um, the rules in Bahrain are that if you're coming in from another country, you have to have had a negative test, uh, a PCR test, within 72 hours of travelling and you have to have a medical certificate to prove that. So whereas he could have probably arrived for his test driver duties Friday or Saturday to be there as a race driver, the clock clock is ticking a bit. Yeah, I mean, Hulk managed it um, getting to the circuit on the morning of, well, FP3. Yes, but that's when you've got different rules in place. The, bar, is... the Bahrain rules that you have to have this medical certificate to come in. Yeah, so Hulk is another option. Hulk is an option. Um, at the moment, he's not exactly doing anything. No, very true. He probably is floating around near the bubble anyway, because that just seems to be what he does. Yeah, he could get he could get to be the first Mercedes driver to drive the nineteen and twenty cars without being a Mercedes driver. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, we can't we can't contradict that later on. So great, it's yeah. a really good show we did this week. Yes, looking forward to you all hearing it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, Hulk is an option, but the one that seems to be getting the most traction at the moment appears to be George Russell. I think this is the one that makes the most sense. Uh, he's there. He's in the bubble already. He knows the circuit as much as anyone knows that particular layout of the circuit because he was on the circuit last week. Um, he's in the Mercedes family. There are other options for Williams about, such as Jack Aitken, who is their reserve driver, has a super license and really is not involved in the F2 championship race. Yeah. So could quite easily miss that last round. Um Mercedes don't particularly have anyone on the books that they could just hand to Williams aside from like Stoffel van Dorn, but they could pay Stoffel who wouldn't be allowed to take Jack Aitken's seat because he is a previous GP. No, not in F two. In oh. if he could, he could replace 
if George goes oh, to Mercedes, Stoffel potentially could go to Williams. But if they go with Jack Aitken in the Williams, Mercedes could quite easily just pay Campos to cover the cost of that seat that he would leave in F2, and they could just get whoever they like. And there are other other drivers available. Oh, there's all sorts of this time of year, isn't there? Basically, anyone in F3 would want that seat, yeah. just to try and get a seat for next year. Um, Campos themselves have Alex Peroni in F3, um, who had all their points this year, had a few podiums, definitely would be a good con- candidate for F2. And had the most spectacular crash seen at Monza in a long time. Very true, very <laughs> true. They've just announced Ralph Boschung for F2 this morning, so they might want to get him in a year early, because um, he's been out for a year. They would very easily fill that seat if Jack Aitken wasn't using it, I think. So. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, the other announcement this morning, mm-hmm. um, Nikita Mazepin. Yes. We um, are not shocked, really, are we? Let's be honest. We, we, we were thinking, and will be thinking, that it's going to happen. Yes. Because... This seemed to be the rumour, didn't it, when it was announced that Grosjean and Magnussen would be leaving at the end of the year. It seemed to be instantly like, oh, and later on today we're going to hear that it's Mazepin and Schumacher, and then it's all gone quiet for about the last six weeks. Mm. But no, Mazepin's been confirmed this morning, and I still think this is the precursor to a potential buyout. As you will hear hear us discuss with Scarbs later Mm -hmm. on, actually. Well, we know he tried to buy force in India, as it was at the time. Yeah. Um, and was a bit pissy about being beaten to it by the Strolls. Yeah. Um, so that case is still ongoing, apparently. Oh, but yeah, it's, I think it's gone. They've bought it. <laughs> yeah, I think they're now, they're now suing the administrators. Oh, good. Well, that's that's always a classy way to go. Um, so, yeah, we know they, they have been in the market for a team. Whether or not they would want that team, I do not know. As we, we'll talk about that and the pros and cons of that later on. But. It's very strange to be repeating ourselves yeah. when they've not heard. The th- <laughs> no one's heard the thing that we're repeating. Yes. Uh, more on this later um, or earlier. Yeah. In time, mm. there will be a discussion. Um, so yeah, it's it's going to be Mazepin. I haven't announced Schumacher yet, which comes as a mm-hmm. bit of a surprise. Yes and no. I think one, if they announce them both together, Schumacher gets all the headlines. True. Unfortunately for Mazepin, they had obviously pre-arranged this announcement at 8 o'clock this morning, which came about half an hour after the Hamilton announcement. So poor Mazepin, no one's noticed. Um, So yeah, I imagine they wanted to give him his own day. I wouldn't be surprised if they deliberately delay Schumacher until next week so that they can do it at Ferrari World. Oh, of course there is do the it. big... Who, who's, who's coming down the roller coaster? Uh, it's Mick. Oh, yeah, I never thought, I never thought of yeah, that. Yeah, I, I suspect that. Um, however, we know it is Schumacher because Prema have announced his replacement this morning, which is Oscar Piastri, who is the F3 champion. So, no surprises when he uh, when he goes, because I can't, I can't really see Prema getting rid of Schwarzman. No. And his Russian money. And as his well. Russian money. F- and old. Ferrari backing. And yeah. actual talent. That's kind of the perfect, perfect <laughs> trifecta for a Russian driver these days, mm-hmm. isn't it? You know, good driver, good backing. and uh, Well, good engineering backing. And yeah. that SMP racing logo on Always the car. Always handy. Usually mm-hmm. comes in useful. Um, I, think, I think that about covers it. Oh, there was one no. other announcement this morning that oh, yes. Red Bull are now not making an announcement on Alex Albon until after Abu Dhabi. Announcement that there is no announcement. Yeah, the, the kind of... The news is there is no news. 
Um, so I think we're I'm just checking Twitter ne- to see if we've missed anything else in the last couple. We're of now minutes, up to date. Oh, and uh, Grosjean is now staying in hospital another day, and he expects to be released on Wednesday. But he did say that he wants to um, he wants to do the last race of his F1 yeah, career. I think that's fair. Which yeah, that would. Uh, I it, think given as well that he has, you know, it has been decided he's not doing this weekend. Might as well stay in hospital for an extra day. Keep everything nice and clean. Yeah, have the right people looking at it. I think that's the. Yeah, and we're allowed to make jokes now because even he's saying no with his bandages. He's got Mickey Mouse hands. That's fair. So good for you, Roman. Right, shall we uh, now have a podcast? Now we've got the jump cut out of the way. Yes, and probably by the time you've listened to this, the Mercedes replacement announcement probably will have been made, so this will be out of date. Yeah, if there's Thursday news, we'll <laughs> uh, we'll try and put an extra show together or something. Right, enjoy. Bye. Hi, and welcome to this week's Three Legs, Four Wheels F1 podcast. It's Paul here with... Sean. Chris. Lee. And this week we have a special guest with us, if he would like to introduce uh. himself. Hi. <laughs> uh. My name is Craig Scarborough, and I'm a technical analyst. <laughs> Hello, everybody. <laughs> Hello, Scarbs. Hi, Scarbs. Thanks so much for com- coming back on. Uh, you were last with us um, about 25 years ago when we did an Australian Grand Prix preview in March. How have yes. things been since then? <laughs> uh, well, not much has happened. Uh, <laughs> quite literally. Um, time has stood still. Um, and, yeah, I mean, yeah, I suppose when we look back, I mean, you... you only now as we come to realise we have had a pretty full season, haven't we? Um, it's maybe not been the most exciting of seasons, but um, yeah, we've had we've had some entertainment out of the year anyway, I guess, from uh, action on track. Yeah, I mean, I remember the last the last time we spoke about eight months ago. It was um, the whole the whole idea of a season was looking dubious after the Australian Grand Prix, and we would um, there were certain people on this show mentioning no names, but it's called Lee. Hi. <laughs> um, <laughs> with your famous quote, "I can't see any F one happening this year." I've never been so glad for you to have been so wrong. Yeah, I mean. We suppose we had the, the benefit of this year is that we've that the season we've had has been completely unexpected, and we've gone to places that really we you know we'd never kind of you know gone back to Imola. We went to Portimao. I mean, I remember going to a F1 test in Portimao back in what was that 2009, thinking F1's never going to come here, they're never going to race here, and bang, COVID gives us one of the most unexpected um, calendars that we've ever had. Yeah, I mean, you know, the other unexpected track as well being Magello. That was uh, that was a surprise when that one was announced. Yeah, and I think again, you know, kind of for some of us that have followed Formula One for for many years, and obviously lots of other categories, it's like you seeing some of these appear on the calendar because it gives you a bit of a bit of a warm feeling, really, doesn't it? It's like, wow, we've raced at Magello again. We've gone back to Imola, as I say, and all those other places. Um, you know, double headers at the same circuit, which. Still, I can't quite get my head around why you would do that, but it's given us it's given us a season, so uh, we've got lots to be thankful for, I guess. Although we still ended up having a race at Sochi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, <laughs> I think a lot of these came down to the the, uh, the the willingness and the budget of the people to put the event on. Um, some of them have got obviously the the commitment to go racing. Some of them have just got the money to go racing. I think Sochi appeared for uh, for one of those reasons, and um, because I, I like to continue to travel around the world, I won't tell you which one I think that is. <laughs> <laughs> Discretion being the better part of valor, <laughs> of course. <laughs> 
So, what have you thought of this season so far? Um, it's strange, isn't it? I'm I'm very much in two minds about this year. In, in lots of respects, I think it's been one of the dullest seasons um, for a long time because of just the predictability of qualifying and of the races, certainly for, you know, podium positions and for the front rows and things. Um, and, you know, you've got to respect Mercedes for the you know, incredible and consistent job they've done since 2014. But, you know, it doesn't doesn't kind of give you that warm, fuzzy feeling that you really want to get excited and sit down and watch the race. However, the uh, that sort of the, the front half of the midfield and a lot of the uh, younger drivers, I think, are the thing that have really set this season on fire. You know, the Landos um, and the Science and all of the you know all of these young drivers that are going to obviously fill the shoes of the uh, the big seats. And um, you, know, you know, people like McLaren again finally getting back to the front of the midfield has been really kind of put this season. Um, up on a sort of the pedestal that you know maybe the the headlines don't really reflect, and I think that's where all the interest has been during the race to see you know all those amazing tussles, um, you know, and you know one midfield team will be great one race, and then someone else will take it on. And as we go into these final races, you know, despite you know, I think Racing Point obviously tripping up a little bit uh, this weekend, um, you know, it's still all to fight for for um, you know that, that position in the championship. And I think that's great. And I think that's that's really what's kind of for me is very much has kind of kept the season alive in terms of the interest in um, watching the race weekends. Well, I think it's McLaren getting back towards the towards the right end of the grid. That's giving uh, that's giving us the warm fuzzy feeling. <laughs> yes, you know, um, I mean, I, 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 oddly, I've already written one season review. And it was, you know, you sort of, you know, McLaren are there, Racing Point have obviously had a fantastic year as well. Um, Toro Rosso, sorry, Alpha Tauri, um, have really kind of got stuck in there, you know, particularly in the races. And then you've got Ferrari kind of batting around between either being a podium team, a midfield team, or, you know, languishing at the back with the, the Williams and the Haases. So it's been a, a really topsy-turvy year for that kind of midfield group. But, um, yeah, I think that really, they're the people that I think we uh, we need to congratulate for an exciting season. Now, um, uh, Chris, you've got, a, you've got a question. Yeah, yeah, in the same sort of vein, really, but on the same lines of McLaren. With the cars that are going to remain largely the same for next year, does it bode well with McLaren switching to a Mercedes power unit, or is it going to be a problem if they, you know, because they're using a car that was designed with a Renault power unit? Um, it's tricky for them, definitely. I think um, there will be uh, some of their effort are being watered down in doing the, the, the transfer from one engine to another. Um, so that takes some of the team's resources away at the factory. Um, but I think of all years, this is the year that you've got maybe some slack um, at the factory to be able to do that. Um, however, they are a little bit restricted <coughs> Excuse me, uh, in how f- much they can change other aspects of the car to suit it. So that will be a little bit of a handicap. Um, but, you know, I think what's been good and what McLaren's resurgence has been over these past few years, because I mean, I can remember talking to you a couple of years ago and they were absolutely in the doldrums. Is oh, yeah. that McLaren seems to be completely on top of their car at the moment? They understand how it's working, they understand um, what changes they introduced, like they had the new nose um, midway through this year, and things seem to be working when they're putting them on the car, which obviously hasn't necessarily been the case over the past few years. So, if they've got a really good handle on what's making the car go, 
then I think in the grand scheme of things, the engine change shouldn't really impact too much on their performance for next year. So uh, I think they may have some teething issues, um, maybe not necessarily at the start of testing, maybe as they get into the first few races and, you know, things they hadn't quite expected to kind of fall out the woodwork. But I think overall, I think McLaren are looking in a, a really strong position because let's face it, that, that Merck power unit still is the one to have there. Um, and no disrespect to Renault. And I think Renault have done a great job this year in catching up um, with the, the Mercedes as the kind of the de facto best power unit out there. Um, yeah. I think, you know, I think on balance, I think McLaren have more to look forward to than to fear in 2021 sorry chris i thought you i thought you were going to say something else then um <coughs> i don't know <laughs> um throw me completely while we're on the subject of um mercedes powered cars and mercedes power units so the racing point turned out not to be the pink mercedes in the end it was just wearing a mercedes costume from the looks of things um, yes, I mean, that, that always was the case. But I think the problem was, is that everyone was so quick to kind of pile in on Racing Point at the beginning of this year. I think the facts, um, as often has been the case in news this year, not, not just in motor racing, but in lots of other areas, you know, facts don't get in the way of a good story. Um, and it was always quite clear from testing and from Racing Point very early on is this isn't a complete copy of the mercedes car it is the mercedes aerodynamics and a few other parts applied to effectively um a racing point chassis and uh you know with all the best will in the world it was never going to be you know um the second best car to mercedes this year you know that just you know, wouldn't be possible but what it has done it gave racing point that leapfrogging performance that they couldn't have done incrementally by developing their old car. So it served its purpose. And even by midway through this year, Racing Point were going their own way with some of the aerodynamic development on the car, uh, particularly with the big side pod update. But lots of other little details are very specific to Racing Point and not just cribbing uh, from you know the Mercedes um, design book. So uh, again, for them, when you look into 2021, if they have got a grip on that car so well, and I mean, let's face it, I mean, it was absolutely flying, particularly with, you know, the classic Perez uh, tyre management race that we saw in Bahrain. Um, again, you know, they're looking to be in a really strong position for 2021 with, you know, lots of stability. Um, I know there is a driver change and I'm <laughs> not going to get too deeply dragged into that one because it's almost impossible to predict where Vettel's head's going to be uh, next season. But um, I think you know, the increasing investment that's clearly going into the, the Silverstone team racing point to be Aston Martin um, just really bodes well for them. And, um, you know, the heads that they've got <coughs> technical side over at Silverstone there um, are going to be, you know, very pragmatic in how they spend all this money that's suddenly coming towards them. So I don't think they're going to suddenly go off and be a like we saw with maybe Honda or Toyota in their time by just blowing money somehow. Um, I think they'll really be quite careful and focused on where they put that investment to really get the performance out of the car, which fundamentally is what you know that team has done since since day one. It's just spent its money in exactly the right way to get the most performance. And, you know, this whole copycat thing is, is an aspect of that. Sorry, phone was, phone was just going mad. I have, <laughs> I have muted it, I think. 
It's one, definitely one of those nights again. You say about Toyota uh, being one of the teams that blew money. What, what was, was, was there any sort of final amount that they spent on there? Because it, it didn't, hadn't they spent the most amount of any team in F1, even with the few seasons that they did? And it, it was a ridiculous figure. I, I heard that mentioned. I don't know the facts behind it. I mean, you know, they still have that facility over in Cologne. I mean, they built you know, arguably one of the best Formula One factories in the world, and still their wind tunnel is one that is used by for- the other Formula existing Formula One teams all these years after they pulled out. So, you know, they they did do they did invest their money in lots of clever ways, but I think they didn't have that agility um, and ability to focus on what's important that a good Formula One team is able to do, um, particularly when you've got lots and lots of money. Um, you know, it's almost too easy. <clears throat> and again, Honda is an, another example of that in the, you know, why are they going racing? Are they going racing to win or are they going racing to, you know, build up their um, way of engineering? Uh, I know there's um, uh, a book a Toyota book on how they run engineering. And I know there is like the Honda way as well. Um, and uh, that doesn't translate even today with these huge teams that Formula One teams have now. I don't think that corporate industrial approach works in a fast moving sport like Formula One. And I think, you know, they've, they've been burnt by that. Um, um, whereas if you would then compare a similar thing to someone, you know, the team that's probably spent the most over the past few years is Mercedes. But when you look at their management, um, they've got, you know, people that are very experienced in F1 uh, and know how and when to spend money and how to run a good engineering operation. And that's what's given them these, what, seven years of, of domination of the sport. And, you know, you can't see it ending next year for Mercedes and you probably can't see it ending it even with the big rule changes for 2022. So, you know, it's all about how you operate the team uh, as much as, um, you know, the budget that you've got. Well, it's looking more and more like it's going to be just going to be an aero change for 2022 now, isn't it? And there's, there's talk of the engine freeze and the whole yeah. convergence. Yes, exactly. Um, you know, which, which bodes very well for the midfield. Um, you know, we got to worry where Honda and Red Bull are going to get to um, by the start of next season, whether they can produce a, um, a, a proper competition for Mercedes. Uh, and they've really been a lot further away this year than perhaps we expected them to be. And obviously Ferrari have got you know, still a, a huge mountain to climb to even get back onto the Red Bulls' heels, let alone Mercedes. So, yeah, next year isn't boding well for um, people wanting a, a wild card to win the championships. But again, you think you look, you need to look away from the podium positions for the uh, the excitement during the season. Um, talk about Red Bull and Honda. Do you think the future holds for Red Bull that they're going to buy the uh, the like the engine IP? off honda and start producing their own engines yeah i mean i think that is um probably the most sensible direction for them and um also probably the most likely to happen um i can't see anyone else um leasing them engines um i think <laughs> they put the bridges with renault um and ferrari um whether they would want a ferrari engine but equally ferrari would want to give uh, their engines to such a good chassis and likewise with with mercedes 
um, it seems their best option. And there seems to be some convergence now and some agreement that there will be a, a power unit freeze from 2022, which is probably about right for letting Ferrari kind of recoup what they've lost this year and for Honda to have one last final push before it becomes a, a branded engine in the Red Bull, whichever that may be described. Um, and, you know, I mean, I've sort of been quite close to the Red Bull R&D projects over the, the past few years, and they've got very close to producing their engine a number of times um, with various partners. So I think, yeah, this you know, it's probably quite an, I won't say an easy route for them, but it's probably the best route for them to have a little bit of control over their own destiny with the power unit and uh, to make sure that is competitive with regulation changes and, you know, some of these very high tech partners that they have in uh, Austria and the UK to continue to develop that power unit within the, you know, the restrictions that they will have. So, you know, I think it's probably worked out slightly better for Red Bull than perhaps it appeared when uh, Honda first kind of dropped that bombshell on us. So, yeah, so fingers crossed for them, because obviously I think it is important that there are as many engine manufacturers or engine options in, in F1 as, as possible. Yeah. Do you think, um, just to go back to the Ferrari thing, what exactly is it that they got wrong, and can they actually fix it in time for 2021? Or is it something that they, they're going to have to wait for the rule change to, to be able to reverse? No, I mean, I think Ferrari had gone down, um, and again, this is all conjecture, I, I hasten to add, um, Ferrari had gone down a route where they were trying to pass more fuel flow through the engine by phasing the pumping of the fuel from the fuel tank past the fuel sensor so that the the, 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 the pumps fuel t were timing with the um, sensor measuring the fuel flow uh, wasn't sensing, so it only ever sort of sensed the low end of the, the wave of fuel mm. pulses going through the engine. And they'd very much built um, their engine over the past season or two around that. And when that was then negated by the, the private agreement they had with the FIA and the apparently completely unrelated change to the fuel flow sensor set up <laughs> inside the fuel tanks of all of the cars... Um, they just, they really just lost, you know, a big hump chunk of power from that car. And yeah. at the same time, the car that they had designed uh, around what was supposed to be a very powerful engine, uh, suddenly they had a chassis that had the, you know, the downforce and the drag figures, unfortunately, but the engine couldn't carry that. And I think equally, Ferrari have got a bit of a management problem at the moment. They probably have a bit of, uh, correlation with the wind tunnel and they've also said that they have some issues with the structure at the back end of the car around the gearbox and stuff so they've got lots of things going wrong now recouping that situation is a big big ask for them and it's going to be a real measure of uh, binotto and of ferrari of whether they're able to do that and historically ferrari have been very hit and miss in these kind of situations i think we can all agree um so, yeah, there is no reason that they couldn't bounce back with an engine that's competitive and with a chassis that's competitive and with a driver lineup, which I think would be really exciting next year. Mm. Um, but equally, it could fall even more to pieces um, internally with politics and engineering fights and things. So it's just very hard to predict. But it, you know, it could go either way. And I guess it could also fall between those two stones as well. Um but I think, you know, Formula One does need Ferrari in it. I think that's 
<clears throat> and that's not coming as a Ferrari fan or anything. I think it's just you know, a part of the mystique of the of the sport is you know having these old names and these old circuits and that sort of stuff. There's a lot of the heritage is quite key to Formula One. Um, but equally, we need people to be competitive with with Mercedes, and I think that's you know even if it's just Ferrari pushing Red Bull to push Mercedes, that's fine. Um, you know, I think we just need to have that little bit of jeopardy as to who will be um, on the top step of the podium and on the, you know, the front row of the grid every weekend. And I think that will only come by having more competition uh, snapping at Mercedes heels. Yeah. Did you see the, um, the, the really bizarre spin that kind of got was missed by the TV cameras um, after the, the safety car restart? Uh, in Bahrain, um, that Vettel did a very strange sort of mid corner, um, mid corner spin, but um, it kind of, it kind of just looked like, um, kind of just looked like the front end just, just was gripping, and then all of a sudden there was no grip. Uh, it wasn't like, uh, you know, Vettel put his foot down. Yeah, yeah. What, what, what did you? What was your? Yeah, what was your what was your take on that? Is that an aero problem similar to what Williams had a couple of years ago? I I think um, I think aero is part of this, and it's probably at the heart of lots of the problems they've had in competitiveness this year. Because if they had the aero right, then you know even the lack of power could be overcome to a degree, and the car just you know the car just isn't working with Pirelli tyres as it should, and it's something about that rear end. Uh, and particularly with the, the Pirellis this year for all of the teams. And I think, you know, Red Bull are, are as, um, suffering with this maybe almost as much. Certainly Albon is. But when you see some of the odd spins that um, Verstappen has, there's just something about these rear Pirellis and they, they're, they're, they're not um, predictable and they don't slip in the same way as perhaps they've done in the past. And Vettel has, has really struggled with them this year. Um and I think it's one of those things. It's it's um, you know, ever decreasing circles. It's they have this problem. His confidence is going, and then the car's not working, and just everything compounds to just be, you know, just an utterly miserable time racing that car. And I think Vettel actually kind of said as much uh, during the race. I forget his exact words, but it wasn't very complimentary to the. Uh, no, it wasn't. <laughs> um, Undrivable, um, I think it was. Wasn't I think, it? yeah, I think that was. I think, yeah, I think that was the the, the key word in that sense. I forget the rest of how the rest of it went together, but um, yeah, it's just you know, it, it, it's one of those things. And um, you know, I think Vettel's position is very similar to Albon's, but equally, when you look at lots of the other sort of spins that we've had this year, and when people have had a bit of a slide and the car has snapped and completely thrown the car off the circuit, it's um, yeah, there is something odd with these Pirellis. Um, and, um, you know, I, I do a lot of defense for, for Pirelli in terms of, you know, these, the level of degradation that these tires need to have to meet the FIA's requirements. But equally, you know, I think we're ending up now with some, some very unraceable tires, um, that have got lots of sort of foibles that the team are having to cope with. And I would much rather have, um, I'm happy to stick with high deck tyres because I think that is part of the, 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 you know, putting a bit of strategy into the race with you know, and how it works. But I think all of the baggage that that then comes with and how you manage the temperatures of these tyres and how they react to slips and slides um, is now starting to be, you know, sort of detrimental to the uh, the racing that we're seeing and to some of the team's competitiveness. Is that going to get made better or worse next year with the uh, with the eighteen inch wheels? 
So that's not going to happen next year. That's going to happen for 2022. Sorry, 22, isn't it? I I still had it in my head for some Um, reason that was going to be next. I don't know when we are anymore. (laughs) No, again, everything has changed through this year. Uh, Next year, well, obviously they tested in Bahrain early this weekend or last weekend as it was. Um, the, the, The tires they plan to run for next year, which are a development of this year's, which is technically last year's tyres, and everyone hated them, much like they did when they tested what was supposed to be the 2020 tyres last year. So we will probably end up going back to what is very much the 2019 tyres, which they released obviously in 2019, in 2020, and now 2021. And I think, you know, these tyres, they're not going to get any better next year. Um, They're trying to cut back downforce on the cars, but that is you know, really just kind of stopping the aero development briefly, but it will march over onwards to more and more downforce. And I think next year the tyre situation will be much the same. Um, 2022 with the with the, the new 20-inch uh, wheels, I mean, again, it's one of those things you simply can't predict it. it. They could be a huge improvement. They could be even worse than the tyres we have now. Um, it's, um, you know, you just have to hope that Pirelli do a really good job with them. Um, but it's yeah you know, that that step for 2022 is going to be a massive one, not least because of all the other changes they're making to the cars. But that tire change is you know sort of fundamental to the the, the dynamics of these vehicles. Um, and um, yeah, uh, I'd love to have lots of optimism, and I'd love to be able to say I think probably going to absolutely you know knock those tires out of the park and all that sort of stuff. But you know, I'm not sure if I have that level of optimism. Um, that we could predict that, you know, these are going to be great race tyres. Um, I think we just have to see how they shake out. Is the big problem for Pirelli that they haven't really been able to do much testing this year? Um, I think that's an aspect of it. Certainly will be an aspect as we get to the 2020 tyres. Um, but I think um, it's almost um, hard to describe it, a philosophical way of doing things. Um, Pirelli have a way of making a tyre which is different to the way Michelin would make a tyre, for example, or any other manufacturer. Um, And something about these Pirellis come with all of these awkward aspects to them, you know, the uh, temperature sensitivity, the the runaway, um, thermal runaway, you you start to slide these tyres, how they react when they do slide and then grip again. Um, You potentially wouldn't get that with... And I, I use Michelin as an example, not because I think they would necessarily do the, a perfect job, but they would just be a different type of tyre. And um, yeah, it's you know, they're, they're, it's a bit frustrating um, that Pirelli don't seem to have ever got on top of these problems. And I don't think it is just track testing. I think it is it is a mentality thing um, on how you know what they want to invest in. Um, developing these tyres and how they want to make these tyres. So um, I don't think increased testing would necessarily change it. Um, I think it's um, just the way they've chosen to to go down this path. And they don't seem to have that desire to make a change there. Well, uh, Michelin had their own problems a few weeks ago in the MotoGP, didn't they? Because the the track was five degrees too cold for the Mm. operating temperature on the bike tyres. Never never seen that before. (laughs) 
No, uh, I mean, again, these these odd seasons and races at funny times of the year, and I think um, the weekend before last <laughs> is uh, a, yeah, a classic example of um, you really didn't expect weather and uh, conditions to be like this, but it did give us yeah quite an incredible race. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, tyres tyres are you know a big a big chunk of it is is science, and a big chunk of it is, is still you know um, black magic, and you know. It's, it, you, you can't design a tire. You can't predict um, through simulation exactly how it's going to work and how it's going to uh, operate on the track, given all the different cars, all the different track surfaces, all the different climatic conditions. Um, but still, I think you know. I think we'd like to like to see a bit more consistency and you know the talk being much less about the tires and much more about how good the cars are or the drivers are than how good one particular. Uh, team are able to um, just operate these tyres sometimes. Because if that's if that's the case about one team be, being able to get the tyres right, we're going back to the days of Bridgestone making tyres for Ferrari and anybody else that uses them. Well, they're there if you want them. Yeah, but, I mean, it is a bit. You know, it is a, a little bit like I think Mercedes have done. You know, incredibly well over these past few years to really get their tyre management under control, and um, you know that is very much comes from the engineering side, but in particularly with the way that Lewis is able to manage tyres during the racing, uh, understand what they're doing, translate that to the team, and when the team then need him to do something with the tyres, he's driving, can somehow get that. I think it's a very complementary relationship you've got there with, you know, the tyres of the, the engineering team and the driver, and I think you see maybe less so with, with, with Bottas in that team. But then you see how Racing Point have traditionally gone, you know, very good on tyre management, very good on eking out those long stints, particularly with Perez, and I think losing him is going to be a, a big detriment to how that team might go racing. It's been very much their kind of, that again, Bit with, with like with Lewis and with with Mercedes, they've got a way of racing that really works for them, and it's totally different to how Mercedes will race with tyres. But you know, how many times have we seen Perez pulling a, you know, a fantastic race result from you know, diligently stretching out those stints and getting those tyres working? And then equally, other teams that are just completely at sea with the tyres. You know, it's been so much over the past couple of years. And I don't think a tyre war is necessarily, which a lot of people kind of think we should go back to, because the trouble with the tyre wars for any race and any conditions or uh, even within the teams is there's only ever going to be one good manufacturer of tyres at each race. So that means immediately half the grid <laughs> kind of out of the running. I don't think that is... You know, I don't think that is is a good way of going racing. I think everyone should start with the opportunity that it's simply down to the bits that they've designed and built should decide um, how good they are. I don't think tyres should be part of that formula of, um, you know, adding jeopardy or, or a performance to the cars. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't I can't think of any times sort of in the past when we've had uh, we've had a tyre war going on that it's that it's benefited F one as a spectacle. Um, no. I mean, all right. The, no, the, I, the, the I, extreme I is it's always been... yeah. The extreme case is the the US Grand Prix, which we don't talk about. But yes, the, the, you know, there was there was many other times when well, what you know, what's the point? Um, the don't know. Was it the Bridgestones or was it the Michelins that were far and away the better tyres at the time? Well, those are the teams that are going to run off with this one. Maybe ne yeah, maybe exactly. next week we'll have the track for it. 
Well, exactly. And I mean, I can remember there was a stage when I think I'm pretty sure it was the Michelins um, would only operate in really hot conditions and they would only ever really come into their road when it was hot. Uh, and back in the, the old, old days when, you know, I could spend um, most a week, I mean, most months um, watching testing in the pit lane at Silverstone. And uh, typically, as it's silver, you would get Silverstone during testing, which tends to be early in the year or late in the autumn. It, the weather's quite cold. And when Alonso was just a test driver for Renault, he would be stood out in the pit lane. Obviously, it shows you how long ago this was now. And he'd be stood there looking up at the uh, the, the sky and it's freezing cold. And you walk along and go, mm, Michelin's is too cold for them today. He's like, yeah, what can you do? I, I would try and do an Alonso accent, but I really can't. <laughs> um, and it's like, well, yeah, it's cold. Michelin's won't work. Um, and that's, you know, I don't think that's how you want to go into a race weekend, discounting all of one manufacturer's um, uh, teams um, because the weather doesn't suit them. So I don't think that, that fits. I think what you need to have is um, a good raceable tyre with high degradation so that we do have the ability to shake the races up until the cars can genuinely race without any artificiality. Hopefully 2022 will get us down that road that you know you don't need tire strategy you don't need drs to allow overtaking it should be just down to the the chassis and the driver um uh, maybe we can get to that stage um you know i'm not necessarily sure pirelli have got it in mind to make tires that race like that but you know uh, that that's all of the future why is why is everyone saying that's a me kind of line but someone who didn't have cold tires this weekend was roman grosjean Sean, that well, that, that, you wrote that for me. That is terrible. <laughs> I wrote it as a joke. <laughs> um, we have we have to talk about what happened on Sunday because that was one of the most terrifying crashes that um, I've certainly seen, and I think it's probably um, the same for the rest of us. Mm, definitely. I yeah, thought I watched I, a man die on Sunday afternoon for I did. a very mm, brief moment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I've been watching. You know, um, kind of showing my age. I've been watching races. Or it was it was highlights back in the day, but you didn't have the you know Twitter and this internet telling you the result before. Uh, and I can remember seeing some of the accidents that have happened over the years, and I'm I'm, I'm glad to say that those big, scary, fiery accidents had kind of dropped from our consciousness for many years. I mean, I was chatting to some some F1 and people today, and I think it was probably Burger's crash was the last time we had a big, proper fiery accident. Uh, was where, that Imola 1990? That sounds, it was definitely similar. I can't remember the year, but that Eight, sounds about 89, right. and I'm <laughs> quoting Virtual Snapman on that one. Oh, which case? It was certainly that, that, that 89 90 car. I can't remember off the top of my head. But since then, I mean, you know, um, you get a little bit blase. I mean, I actually remember watching the center accident and thinking, well, it's quite okay. You know, I, I, thinking that we'd seen big accidents and that wasn't a big accident. Uh, obviously, you know, I think um, the, 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 the reality, sadly, was slightly different. But for many years, you look at the crashes and you think, no, that's all right, they'll step out of that. But when you suddenly now again see that ball of flames and, you know, knowing what we know of how strong and how safe these cars are nowadays, thinking, well, what the hell's happened there that there is a, a, a fuel fireball like that? And it's like, Christ, that car must have been utterly obliterated. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think like all of us, we all sort of took a breath and just thought, ah, um, yeah, this isn't, this isn't what we, you know, we watch Formula One to, um, to enjoy, is it? 
Um, but I think, you know, there's there's lots that comes out of that accident that can make you feel a little bit um, reassured that there's lots of good stuff that has happened over these, you know, sort of intervening years to really make these cars safe that allows that accident to be survivable. Although there are lots of lessons we need to learn from that. And, um, I tweeted about that yesterday. I think, you know, there's lots of things that we can look at that and think, okay, well, that's not what we thought was going to happen, but let's think about, you know, mitigating that in, in future regulation changes. So, um, yeah, I think it's another one of those kind of pivotal safety moments in F1. Um, no, I think we've all seen the videos now of Roman in his hospital bed or in his armchair next to the bed. Um, yeah. Incredibly unharmed um, for an accident of the severity that we saw there. So, you know, I think there's a, there's, there's a lot to dissect in, you know, sort of stepping through through that accident. Do you think like the immediate thing that can, that can be done is just more tech pro barriers? Uh, again, I... I don't think you can be very prescriptive in saying tech pro barriers. I mean, I think every um, every potential barrier site or obstacle or whatever it is that you need to uh, counter for around the circuit needs to be considered um, quite carefully. Um, I think there are people were saying, well, you should, there should have been tyres in front of that barrier. And actually, that could have made it even worse, um, as uh, difficult as that may be to say. So I think there does need to be um, uh, some, some consideration of where the barriers are. And I think we will now um, go through a phase of where everyone becomes very jumpy about your barrier types at different points on the circuit, um, which is the kind of the natural reaction to um, accidents like this. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think certainly circuit safety, um, I think, you know, if we look at some, some of the worst accidents that have happened, it's not so much the cars um, as that the, it's the, you know, it is the, you know, the architecture around the circuit that has been at fault, whether it be, you know, trucks coming onto the track um, or where barriers are positioned and stuff like that. So I think there does need to be uh, some work on that and there does need to be some work um, on the cars as well. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think Formula One has got very good in um, looking at this stuff and starting to work through it with what used to be the FIA Institute, um, which is um, now the FIA Safety Department, um, that actually has dedicated engineers, ex-Formula One engineers, lots of, uh, you know, uh, graduate students coming in there doing the research to actually look at this stuff in a scientific engineering way rather than what we've had very much in you know, historically in the past where it's just been as you say a kind of knee-jerk reaction which doesn't necessarily always um suit the big picture um rather than just you know specific responses to a particular accident um well, i mean it was it was like the, the terrible accident for jules bianchi wasn't it but then after after that accident we went through a period of formula one where Formula One seemed scared to let cars go out in the wet. You know, it, it, yeah. was, an, it was an odd time. It, I mean, I think, I mean, I, I, I'm uh, uh, probably to my detriment, I'm very much a safety advocate, and it's probably my, my age and my experience now. But, I mean, I, I pushed the halo, and you know, I'm sure we'll talk a bit more about that in a moment, and I've pushed lots of other safety things. Um, and I think what happens, and because everyone says, oh, it's down to the drivers. They're the ones that are putting their lives on the line. I think drivers actually block out the danger 
they never really think of it. And I think what an accident does is puts it front in their mind is, oh, that could happen. And they suddenly become worried about that and they almost overemphasize. And again, I think that goes very much for the safety staff and you know, the race um, stewards and everyone else. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think um, there will be you know, some, some knee-jerk reactions and I think there will be some overcompensations for, for this accident. Um, maybe less so than perhaps, you know, as you explained, you know, it's pretty clear that um, the Bianchi accident was, you know, racing in the wet, vehicles on the track. But we've actually seen over the past two races, you know, marshals and equipment on the track when the races turned from safety car back to green. Um, yeah. And, you know, marshals running across the circuit even uh, uh, through the, the bar rain group, even after that earlier accident so yeah i think there's there's a lot still to be done um but i think there's a lot on right which is why we're able to kind of talk about this um in the way that we yeah. can because roman is in the condition that he's in um and yeah, it could have easily gone the other way yeah i think seems that's to say that it was oh sorry sorry i was just gonna say i think you're absolutely right about uh drivers blocking like the danger out and what might be <laughs> an easier way for listeners to think about that is that I'm, I'm a, I'm a tradesman. I'm a, I'm a decorator. And, um, it's always been a case where there's been the people that, you know, that'll throw themselves up a roof to paint a chimney stack and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. It's always the ones that, um, don't worry about doing it. That, are, that, that'll end up doing it. I'll end up being okay. It's when people, it's when people like me, which don't particularly like walking on roofs, if I was to do it, I'm in danger because I'm scared being there. Yes. So it's, you, you, you can't do something if you're scared of it. No. And I, I think perhaps um, Bottas's performance in the race may have been a reflection of someone being very shaken um, by that. And I mean, if you look, remember back to um, some of the fuel fires that we had um, in, I guess, what was probably the early 90s. Um, I remember Damon Hill um, had, had raced for many years. Up until that point, there was the big fire. Must have been the Verstappen, I guess, wasn't it? And at the next race, he had the old 70s-style Nomex curtain around his helmet. Uh, and for a few races, he, he he raced with that on. And then, then you know, obviously, the fear drops out of your mind. You took that off and you carried on racing. So, you know, I think lots of this does, does come up. And again, when I tweet about safety and everyone goes, oh, it's down to the drivers, it's like, to be honest... The drivers would drive around in pools of burning petrol if it gave them an advantage. They don't think of it, but it's only when someone else gets hurt that suddenly that safety things comes up. And there's lots of current drivers, and there's certainly lots of ex-drivers that were very much against the halo. And I had, you know, kind of uh, arguments with um, over social media that you know this really needs to happen. And they're like, no, 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 it's not in the DNA of the sport and all of this kind of crap. But at the end of the day. No, none of us want to see a driver die live on TV. You know, that's that's not what any of us go go, go to motor racing for. We want to see drivers escape, um, but we'd like to, you know, know that the driver's going to escape from that accident rather than it being, um, you know, waiting for them their head to appear over the guardrail in the fire as the situation unfolded in Bahrain. Yeah, there's, there's nothing wrong with giving a sportsman every chance of survival you can possibly give them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and, um, you know, <clears throat> as I say, we've, we've, we sort of step through that accident now and we think of everything that happened. I mean, the accident itself 
Groshon moving across the circuit to avoid a bunch of cars. Obviously, he was slightly blindsided. He didn't really see the Daniel's car next to him. Um, at least I hope he didn't. And at any other circuit that would have been a touch, he'd have gone off into the, the grass, maybe hit a barrier uh, or um, a gravel trap or something. Um, that would have been the end of it. But in that position on that circuit, um, the, the guardrail, uh, which is one of the old-fashioned Armco, um, I say old-fashioned, I think it's probably still a, a fair way of describing it, three rails of um, Armco, um, but it was angled back to the track. So by the time Grosjean was um, sliding towards it, it, actually he was hitting it at a much more obtuse angle than he would have done. Um, if he was in more control of the car, it would have been a glancing blow. And while he may, his car may have sort of returned to the track after a, quite a big hit, I think he would have been okay. But the angle... Um, of the the barrier, the design of the barrier, and obviously the design of the cars with still quite a pointed nose, even after these regulation changes over the past few years, penetrated the barrier. And I think one of the things most people noticed is that there was no evidence of either the front wing or the nose cone post-accident. You know, it didn't fly off. It looks like it did its job, completely crumpled, started to slow the car, but then the car was by then stuck into the barrier uh, which then starts to bring, because of the natural weight of the car, starts to flick the car around. So he went in nose first. The back of the car spun round, and it looks as though potentially that post that was still not quite evident in the photographs after the accident may have served to either um, snap the engine off or certainly halt the monocoque's um, movement. Um, and then that then led to the back of the car breaking off, which a lot of people, again, have been quite, um, I think they're slightly missing the point in, oh, the car stopped in half and that caused the, the fire. That's not strictly speaking exactly what went on there. Um, so obviously the monocoque and the, the rear of the car parted company. The rest of the car moved not very far down the track, which shows you the amount of deceleration. I think they said it was over 50 G from 137 miles an hour. I mean, that's a big stop. I mean, even without the fire, anyone subject to that. I mean, um, yeah, clearly, Roman has got very little in terms of obvious injuries, but probably by tomorrow, the bruising and the injuries from the, the deceleration will start to affect his body, and he will be feeling very ill, way beyond the burns that he has on his hands because of that deceleration with seatbelts and everything else. Um, it's a testament to the safety features, really, isn't it, of the car, because the halo and the monocoque were still intact. And let's exactly. not forget, Roman Grosjean got out of the car the wrong side of the barrier. His The front of the car was the, was the Marshall side of the barrier. Yeah, um, and I think the car had actually moved by the time we saw the pictures of the car after the accident. I think it actually, at that point, it looked like more of the car was actually the other side of the barrier. And I think it maybe it's tipped a little bit afterwards, um, which um, shows you, again, it's um, lots of things ha really helped him there. So we already had the, you know, the frontal protection that slowed that initial impact down. Um, then you've got that safety cell and the halo, which admittedly did pass through that barrier. But um, without the halo there, I think certainly he would have had a head injury um, by being struck by the guardrail. Um, so I think that's one aspect. But also the halo then kept that guardrail away from him and gave him his safety uh, exit. Now, one of the biggest um, uh, 
counter arguments to the, the halo is that if there's an accident, it's going to trap the driver in the accident. And I think we saw two incidents at Bahrain, obviously Groschon, but also with Stroll, is that the way the car, the halo sits above the cockpit, it actually gives the driver an escape route. Because when a car's inverted, like we saw with Stroll's rather odd accident, um, he climbed out quite easily because the car tipped to one side and the halo's stopping the car being too close to the circuit, you know, preventing him escaping. And then with Groschon, he climbed out, as you quite rightly say, the other side of the um, guardrail through the, the top of the halo. So the halo really did its job there. Um, the rest of the safety cell also did its job that, you know, his legs weren't mangled in that initial impact, which again would have prevented him from escaping uh, and, um, you know, almost would certainly have led to, um, you know, a fatality. Um, but then again, this, this question of the car splitting in half. So this is all kind of part of the mechanism of crashing. So what you want to do is all of the bits attached to the car, you really want them to break. By braking, they're absorbing energy. But also with the engine and the gearbox, the back end of the car, which is like half the weight of the car, so that's like a 400-kilo piece of car, by that breaking off, that means that you've got a much lighter survival cell that the driver's sitting in, which means that it's you know the deceleration is a much you're only coping with a 400 kilo piece of car probably much less by the time the suspension and everything is broken off you'd leave a much lighter piece of vehicle which can be much easier decelerated rather than an 800 kilo car being trying to be pushed through the barriers so that helped and i think actually by that rear end of that car breaking off seeing the crack that was around the front of the monocoque if it hadn't and then you, you can imagine as because the car went no, speared into the barrier and then spun tail around, if the engine, the back end of the car was still attached to the monocoque, that impact would have been taken by the footwell section of the monocoque, basically where the front of the halo connects. And then that's got a square section of the car goes from the cockpit forwards towards the nose. Yeah. That probably would have failed even further and that probably would have snapped in half. And that would probably have, if not broken, Roman's legs it probably would it may well have even you know literally taken his legs off because I think the car was simply split in half at that point so that breaking off probably allowed Roman to escape with his legs um, and therefore survive the accident having said that on the other side the way that it did break off um, is that part of the back of the monocoque which forms uh, sort of the side of the fuel tank at the back of the fuel tank actually broke and that was in that kind of flick as the car spun around and part of the monocoque has been ripped off and it's actually still attached to the front of the engine if you actually look at some of the better pictures of the when they look into that kind of the, the front shape of the uh, rear of the car you can actually see that it's the carbon fiber part of the monocoque was still attached to the engine so that's one of these lessons that we need to learn is like why did that happen why did the bolts not fail and why did it take some of the monocoque with it? But equally, the problem that that caused wasn't so much in that it broke the monocoque, but where it broke, if, um, if you remember back in the refueling days, we used to have the the, re, the fuel filler very visible on the sides of the cars. Mm-hmm. Well, you still yeah. have mm, that. Yeah. Um, and it's just a little aluminium hatch, which they had the various connectors on, which they used to fill and refill the tank. Now, the monocoque tore off and it took the fuel filler, which is bolted to the monocoque side, but that fuel filler, the other side of that is also bolted to the bag fuel tank inside the back of the car. 
So what happened and what caused the fire wasn't so much that by the monocoque ripping off that the bag tank inside um, was ripped and the fuel leaked out the bottom, as perhaps I think a lot of people expected. What actually happened is that that fuel filler was ripped top of the bag tank. Now, by that point, it's the start of the race. You had 110, 100, 110 kilos of fuel on board, which I think equates to about 150 litres, if I can remember my translations. Um, I think, and again, I think this will all be proven um, or disproven in the FIA thing, is the only fuel that escaped, escaped from the very top of the tank. And bearing in mind, the tank is like separated internally by um, baffles was just the very top of the fuel in the tank escaped through that broken fuel filler. So the fire that you saw wasn't the fuel full contents of the fuel tank. Because no. I mean I don't if you I mean if you if you ever go back and look at the um, Ricardo Paletti accident in eighty two in Canada where the full fuel tank leaked on the grid after Peroni hit him, a fuel tank of fuel. I mean if that had happened we wouldn't be again we wouldn't be having these kind of conversations today it wouldn't have been respectful um because he would definitely have perished potentially so i think again the bag tank design served to reduce the amount of fuel that was spilt um and again reduce the size of the fire as much as it was obviously a huge fire um but again lessons need to be learned it's like what can we do with that interface to make sure that if there is um, a, a breach of the monocoque, that the bag tank and its filler hatch aren't unduly affected by it. So, um, again, things to look at, things to be learned. <clears throat> and um, then when you look at, you know, Grosjean and his safety equipment. So, first of all, he had a massive deceleration through his seatbelts. Um, his neck wasn't broken with a 50G impact, and that's because of the hands device which is still, you know, in its infancies in, in F1. You know, I think it's only been around for maybe 15, slightly maybe more years now. Um, so that kept him in one piece from that initial impact. Again, 50G, you can't even think what a 50G no. impact must be like. I mean, no. imagine I think I, I, think I looked it up last night. I think it was the, um, the, the, the most, the, 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 the record for the most, for the, for the survived, um, the most G four survived, uh, measured actually measured in a laboratory is forty six point two, and they they didn't think it was possible to survive more than a than than that uh, as an impact in a laboratory. Uh, it was in America many many years ago, but obviously there have been people who survived like plane crashes with bigger G. But the, like th- that for like for fifty G, like, that, that's insane. Fifty times a man a man sat up on an armchair this afternoon. Given a thumbs yeah. up, I mean, that's yeah. <laughs> to say, and he will he will suffer for that, and I that means he that. weighed like three thousand kilos or something when he hit that when he hit that barrier. Essentially, that's what he weighed when he hit that barrier. Yeah. I mean, fifty G is like having fifty people lying on top of you, and I mean, I, yeah, it's, like, it's it's not something that you can you can imagine. But he survived that level of impact, and then a flash fire, and obviously, then you're talking then about his. Um, fireproof suit, his boots. I mean, he, he lost one through the accident somehow. Uh, his gloves, his helmet. Um, so he's got through all of that. And I, I timed the accident from the point that I first saw the fire to the point I think his head finally appeared over the barriers, about 30 seconds. 
So he was he was in flames for thirty seconds. Now I don't know if you've ever been. Do you think near, he was unconscious? Um, I don't know. Um, I I don't know quite how you would describe whatever his state of mind may have been at that moment. I think if he was like, he, he may have blacked out briefly, but I think if he was unconscious because of that accident, I don't think he would have regained consciousness in the time that he had. I think it was much more about just working out where you are and what you've got to do next. Because obviously, you know, he was um, out of that car pretty rapidly. I mean, you've got to think that yeah. he had to, he, he's, he's lost his boots. So there's a story to be, to be told what happened there. So I presume it, it was caught on something potentially inside the car or on the way out. He had his belts to do. Um, he had to find out you know, the orientation he's in. You know, if you remember the accident he had, was it Bahrain last year or was it Abu Dhabi where he inverted the car and um, was stuck against a barrier? Was it was Hulkenberg. I think it was Hulk. Hanging like a cow. Or was that Hulkenberg? I thought that was Grosjean for some reason. I think Grosjean was involved. Easy mistake to make. Hulkenberg bounced off Grosjean's front end and went upside down in the barrier. Oh, right. Okay. I thought it was Grosjean in the accident. But yeah, again, a very sort of similar accident. So you've got to work out where you are. You've got to then get yourself out of the car and then even if you imagine you just even just standing up it's like what direction do i go in you know there's just you know so much instinct so much you know questions how the hell he did it and obviously by then and again the other aspect of this the, the result of this accident was the fire extinguishers getting on site the medical car being there within seconds of the accident by the time they were actually out and by the time they got to the barrier you know Groshon's head was above and that was all over in 30 seconds I mean it's just a level of response that you just really almost can't imagine and all of these things which have been practiced and have been improved over the years with the work by you know going back to sort of Jackie Stewart about you know fires and crash helmets and seat belts going through to Sid Watkins um, with the you know the circuit safety and the medical cars and the facilities that they've got, Charlie Whiting, and latterly um, you know the the FI safety uh, department, all of that added up to allow us to see a social media post of um, Roman in his his hospital room, um, and you know I think even just a few years ago this would have been a very different story. Um, um, but hopefully, potentially, in a few years, you know, the same situation could arise and it would have just been, you know, oh, we'll delay the start and there'll be no, no conversation to have after the accident. You know, there'll be no fire, there'll be no issue about the safety barriers. Um, and um, we, can, we can look at other aspects of safety, which are, you know, kind of still need to be looked at in Formula One as much as they're forever kind of marching forwards with it, with a big announcement uh, earlier this year with quite a lot of wide-ranging investigations that FIA were going to go into, but I still think there's other aspects um, of car safety, which is probably maybe my area of expertise more than other areas, that do still need to be looked at uh, and worked on. Um, but, you know, when you see it all added up, one thing that wasn't there, you know, one aspect of that that wasn't there this weekend could have led to a fatality. Um, but lots of other things did mitigated what was potentially an awful accident i take it even simple things like the minimum uh time for exit in a car you know it's when things are put in place like that that means they're drilled so they become second nature yeah i mean i think that there's, there's a lot 
of um, I think someone described it as muscle memory. I think if you've mm. got to get out of the car in a rush, you'll get out of the car in a rush. Yeah. Um, whether it's upside down, upright, you know, in flames on its side, I think it's just one of those things that you you don't think about. And, and I remember watching some of the drivers trying to get out of the cars when the dummy halos were first fitted, and they looked really awkward and didn't know what they were doing. But I mean, you see it now, and they just hop out, and it's it's it, it, it probably even helps them get out of the car nowadays in terms of just something to grab hold of. Um, yeah, and again, it just shows you know, part of the athleticism of these drivers, which I think often gets underplayed. Um, um, but also, I think it's you know human nature, survival uh, kicking in uh, just to get you out of that situation. Um, and um you know it's i i think one of the, the nicest images i think i can remember from yesterday was that one where you have his head just above jumping into the arms of um you know of the medical team it was like oh, you know that's what that's what all of the work has been done over these years by all these great people and all these engineers uh all pays off with it with an image like that yeah, I mean, the the certainly from certainly from me and Sean when we were watching it yesterday, the sense of relief when they cut to him in the car, mm-hmm. in the medical car afterwards, and yeah. he, all right, he looked he looked shaken, but <laughs> that's that's all he looked. It was like you know, yeah, I, was, I, I was just absolutely I, I, amazed that you know that yeah. you know they weren't carrying him. He was alive well, and talking. I mean, I mean you know, adre- adrenaline does a lot for you, but I, I, I would imagine if you could have stopped and spoken to ev- all of there was probably only about four people on the scene at that stage, maybe five or six. If you could have spoken to all of them, I'd imagine Roman would have been the, probably the most lucid of all of them, and the other ones would have been in faces of abject fear. Um, it was quite surreal to see him get out of that situation, walk across in, you know, well, he almost didn't give it a second glance back at the car, did he? It's, 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 it's. Now, I'm sure there's psychologists that can tell us how your brain works in those situations, but he seemed completely unperturbed by the whole event. Um, no doubt there will be, you know, potentially some sort of PA, uh, PTSD sort of stuff that he may may struggle with over the uh, the coming days and weeks. But um, yeah, it, 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 the sight of him just strolling away from that fire was. <laughs> Yeah, ever so surreal, but yeah, you know, incredibly reassuring as a as a fan. Yeah, I mean, we you know we can't we can't we can't stress enough um, how much the safety has come on over the uh, over the last few years, and it's just um, we don't want to see it, but we're glad that we do see the safety developments when they're required. Yeah, I saw a very yeah. interesting tweet yesterday. I can't remember who it was from. Um, but I think it it summed up um, summed up F1's attitude to safety. In the, they said um, it's the same as airline safety. All the measure, all these measures are put in to stop things happening again. Yes, it's it invariably. I think it's a good and bad way of putting it. Invariably, these things tend to be reactive. You tend to need um, something to. Um, kick off these changes obviously you know for most of us who are, uh, can remember like this at the Senna accident you know kicked off a huge amount of safety changes that are sadly yeah. again, Yankee accident um it tends to be you know accidents tend to be a catalyst um and unfortunately that does tend to as mentioned earlier it tends to be a bit of a knee-jerk reaction to whatever's just happened um but I think 
F1 has got a lot better, certainly with the, the current safety department that, that are, are much more they are proactive at looking at potential situations and they're kind of maybe not ahead of the curve at the moment, but they're certainly catching up um, with the curve and you know, introducing things before they come, become a problem. Um, and um, hopefully that, you know, that will get to the stage where, um, you know, we're, we're thinking of things that may, you know, may have only happened a couple of times in the past, but, you know, there's that potential there and it's a simple thing. <coughs> which these things invariably tend to be. Um, uh, yeah. And uh, I think they're, they're much like the regulations. They're getting now much more science led in doing this rather than kind of the um, John Mary Ballest or um, Max Mosley or John Todd kind of going, we must do this. And then everyone quickly finding a solution just to that. So I think I think they're looking at the big picture so much better now in um, in motorsport, and I mean, it's not just F1 because all of this trickles down, and even some of it trickles up. So the, the Billy Munger accident um, led almost immediately to changes in Formula One, and is now starting to filter down to prevent um, you know uh, the jacking points at the back of the car digging into the car. That the front of the car now has the same intrusion protection as the side of the cars. Obviously, there was the awful incidents at um, Spa last year as well. Um, you know, there's, there's there's always lessons to be learned. There's always more data to be had. And um, I think it's not down to us asking the drivers or asking the fans whether we should have this. It's like, is there a safety improvement we can make? Then make it. You know, it's that there shouldn't be an awful lot of argument and there shouldn't be a lot of emotion involved in it. It, it should be to some, some hard figures. Um, and, uh, you know, the halo is a classic if we'd have asked. You know, I remember being at the launch of the Mercedes last year, and Toto Wolf said, yeah, we should take a chainsaw to it. Let's cut it off. It's we, like, this was, uh, it was 2018. This was where we met, and we actually opened a show with that yes. very quote. <laughs> yes, yes. That's right. Crikey, yeah. It seems a long time ago now. Um, uh, yeah, and oh yeah, even, uh, actually, the, the, the amount of grief I got for... for promoting the halo and there, there's there's one guy on twitter i say a guy i i, I presume it's a guy uh, one account on twitter is whenever i post any pictures of the, tw- the halo and i find it quite funny now but at the time it really wound me up he would immediately re- respond with the the vomit emoji uh with all the green and it's like come on this is like you know two years after it's been introduced now it's like time to kind of let it go um but you know it, it, it was proven to be a step in the right direction. I don't think it's the final solution. I think there's still the screen to be discovered. And I think IndyCar have kind of jumped up slightly ahead of the curve there, oddly with the Red Bull development, which I find... Um, it's so, that's so, a strange so, one. That is, that is a very <laughs> strange situation. <laughs> um, and again, I mean, I think the last time we heard from the safety department, they weren't talking about a big step change in the design of the, the halo. Um, they were doing the, the the cheaper halo for the lesser uh, categories, so it's made of steel rather than from uh, titanium uh, to manage the costs. But um, yeah, I mean, I think yeah, that, that again is one of the areas that needs to be looked at the the driver's seat, uh, but particularly circuit safety, um, because that is you know that's what hitting hitting other things uh, is is what's um, happening now. So it's these glancing blows. And sadly, car-to-car contact. And again, I think there's some of the work is being done for the 2022 regulations, particularly with side impacts that, you know, is still a, an obvious weakness in these cars uh, as 
will always be. Um, if you look at road cars nowadays, you know, side impact performance in terms of impact protection has massively increased to where it was even just a few years ago. Um, and, you know, race cars are particularly vulnerable. So you know, lots, lots more work to be done and uh, probably lots more arguments with fans as to whether things should be introduced or not because they're ugly. Um, we'll, we'll have to go ahead. But, um, you know, I think everyone's work has, has been rewarded um, by the time we got to the end of what was quite an eventful Bahrain Grand Prix all round, if you think of the incidents and the fires and uh, stuff going on on circuit. Yeah, I mean, this seems like as good a time as any to sort of move on to um, a race review, really. Because Ooh, we like, can give like, it a go. <laughs> like you say, Craig, there was there was a lot going on. Um, doing the usual front to back thing, we're, at, we're actually going to be starting with um, Racing Point, who were the only team to get a double DNF. Yeah, that's, I mean, that, that, I mean that, there was only a few retirements. And if you look at the, the people that did retire, I mean, they were all fairly dramatic. Um, yeah, Stroll, I mean, just, just one of those accidents, really, wasn't it? I mean, it, the, the, the result was perhaps a bit more dramatic than you would have expected. Um, Although, but, followed it, by a very casual radio message of, uh, guys, I'm upside down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. Um, I don't quite know how these drivers kind of cope with that. But, yeah, um, yeah, big, big blow. I mean, I think the biggest blow was, you know, that, that great drive from a yeah, classic Perez drive, you know, managing tyres, um, yeah. work with the you know, working with the team getting that car in the position and um you know really i mean he wasn't putting pressure on anyone and i know alban wasn't that far from him at the point but um you know fantastic drive and a rather unusual um normally when we see an mg uk failure um that just stops the car on the circuit doesn't it they just kind of grind to a halt or they just lose power but such a huge fire um, from an MGU failure, I, I, I find unusual and all, in some respects almost don't believe it or I don't think that, that what has failed there isn't the usual kind of electrical failure rather than a mechanical failure, which I don't think we've really had in a race since the, the early days in 2014 when the teams really were kind of getting on top of how do you dump a 160 horsepower electric motor through the, the drivetrain without it breaking everything. So... I think it's more of a mechanical failure of the, of the unit rather than, um, as I say, the normal, more normal electrical one. But um, it was pretty dramatic um, and just galling for, for Racing Point because, you know, they'd, 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 they'd got the result in the, in the bag there, hadn't they? Would he have known straight away when it started smoking that there was an issue? Because or, or, he seemed to try and carry on for ages and then there was fire. And would that have been something yeah. he'd have been aware of? Well, I, I, I was pondering that during the race. And actually, do you know what? I haven't actually given it too much thought since I found out the actual explanation. So what, what confused me is that he clearly had smoke coming out of the back of the car that looked to me like it was coming from the exhaust. So it looked like it was an engine failure. And I, I, if anyone's ever driven an engine that's a bit knackered, well, certainly have an engine yeah. that's about to break down. Every car I've you, ever owned. You, you know about it. And you, <laughs> don't, you don't put your foot down. Uh, racing drivers are a slightly different breed. Which reminds so, me, Chris, how's the Alpha? <laughs> the Alpha's fine. It's not, there's not a problem. <laughs> It'll come. Don't worry. I've had Alphas. Um, yeah. Uh, so I think now knowing that it was a problem with the MGU, he probably would have thought it was more there kind of classic failure where you just don't get all of the the, the the rs boost that you would get 
along the straight. So he probably was actually putting his foot down a bit harder to get more out of the, the combustion engine than from the, the hybrid system. So it probably does explain why he caned it quite so hard um, until obviously it just kind of completely fell to pieces, which probably took a lot of the engine with it, I would imagine. Um, so, yeah, so he probably w- w- wasn't aware that it was as dramatic as it was looking from us looking at the outside because you can't really see that smoke um in your mirrors from the way that it disperses and the way that where they're rained yeah you'd have thought the team would have said something to him at the time though that have been able to see that i think i think it was the other way around i think i think uh checo perez told the team he felt something wrong with the car and then they noticed it and then they saw the smoke yeah and then it kind of reset a light, a bit like the old turbo days of the eighties. Actually, it was kind of <laughs> yeah, a little bit. It was a little bit turbo smoke, actually, wasn't it? Because it was quite a, a very white smoke, which I, which I well, thought this, was this turbo failure to start with. Was, uh, yeah, this is why I thought it was combustion failure rather than um, a, a, a hybrid failure. But um, I guess the uh, the mechanism by which it failed probably just sent smoke everywhere. Um, and but it, you know, again, it's it's kind of galling that a double DNF, particularly with two really kind of freak occurrences um, um, may have taken some of the, I'm, I'm not sure exactly where the constructors, but it's certainly taking maybe a little bit the fizz out of it for us. Um, and hopefully they can kind of recover and uh, get some results in so that we get back all the way down to the final laps of Abu Dhabi to see, see how the midfield shakes out. Now that would be uh, that that would be good. But, you know, a season that's still meaningful somewhere at the end of the season. Uh, right, next up, um, it does say Hass, but that really just leaves K-Mag, who... Um, he was there. Yeah, <laughs> bit, of, bit of a participation award for him this week. He took he took part I, in the weekend, and you can't really say much yeah. more. I mean, that's really where Haas have been for much of this year, it's, it's kind of sad to say. Um, and, um, you know, I mean, I, I, I think I can be quite critical of both of their drivers at various points. Um, but I don't think, you know, the situation this year is wholly down to, to them. Um, it'd be interesting to see exactly where they go next year with, with drivers and with their approach to the team, because I think now that their approach is starting to, has bitten them too many times by literally just buying everything from Ferrari and running it rather than starting to bring in their own parts to the car, so the parts that they've designed, parts that they've understood parts that they can obviously uh, resolve issues with and develop through the season. I think simply just be making the minimum, uh, um, certainly with Ferrari as a partner, and I think I don't know if that's down to the rules or just down to the way Ferrari work, but yeah, I, I think they need to mature a bit as a team now, as a constructor. Um, and, you know, this this I think this day was going to come from, <clears throat> excuse me, from from the very first time I spoke to, to Gunther Steiner before they started. It's like, you know, at what point are you going to start to, be a, a real constructor in inverted commas um and um I, I think that really needs to kind of happen now or else you know they're just going to be consigned to chance whether they've got it all right and whether what they've got from ferrari is working in their their setup um when, it's just when you asked him that question was his uh, answer repeatable in polite company well, you've got to remember this was this was this was um, pre pre um, drive to survive, Gunther. <laughs> um, and uh, do you know? And all it, it, 
I've I've chatted to him a lot, and he's one of the guys. He's very much one of the guys in the paddock. And he's got to sound like a you know name dropping. Um, he is one of the people you can just go and have a chat with. Um, and I've never actually noticed him swearing. Probably does a little bit, but it doesn't come across as much as it does on the TV. But no, his response was. Look, we're going to stick to the listed parts approach, which is this, you know, where you buy everything that you can apart from the bits that you have to make. Um, and he says, we're going to stick with that for a few years and see how it goes. But I don't see them, that, that switch doesn't seem to have kicked in at all. Um, and that's, for me, that's concerning. Um, and does kind of consign them to, um, you know, the, the, the um, uh, what's the word? Um, also, run status. Prisoners of fortune. I think it's the one. <laughs> <laughs> Something's had an eighteen reference in my head, and I think that was something else. Um, but yeah, um, yeah, I, I, I think, I, I, I think they, they, they do need to think about how they go racing, um, and um, I think also that how they choose their drivers, because I think that partnership, I think, has had become very stale within the team, and I don't think it was. Um, constructive anyway, having those two drivers in the team for so long. I think it's actually been maybe slightly detrimental to some results in some situations, but fundamentally, I think the problem is with how Haas choose to make a racing car rather than the driver choice. Yeah, I mean, when they when they came in, um, Chris, you were um, you were sort of singing their praises, but maybe this is the way to do it. The you know the off the shelf flat pack approach, and it did look good at first. Yeah, it did to start with. But um, you know, it's, think, that's exactly how it's designed. I mean, it's you know almost partly the, the racing point approach for this year was taken a little bit out of that book, um, and equally with with Alpha Touring as well um, this year. It's a great way of making us, if you bear in mind, Haas were a brand new team, making a sudden step up to competitiveness compared with the slog that Caterham and uh, Manor had over those years. It's a great way of getting up up on the ladder. But it doesn't get you any further steps up the ladder after that. And if anything, you may actually start to make a few steps down. Uh, and I think that's where we're at. So, it, you know, it's, it's a short-term thing. And Haas now have been around for, for quite a few years. I mean, I actually forget exactly how many it is. But what is that? Um, four, five years now, is it? Five, I think, yeah. I think yeah. this is five, isn't yeah, it? The, this is the fifth year. Yeah. When was it? The yeah. 2016 they started. Yeah, yeah, that, that sounds, sounds about, about right. right. Yeah, yeah. They're starting to feel like the team, which is, you, you get the feeling is permanently up for sale. You know, if the if the right person mm. comes in that wants a place on the grid in Formula One, it'll probably be Haas, which has got their hand up to it for the first bidder. Yeah, the trouble is, is what are you buying? <laughs> You're buying the entry, but that you know they're not a constructor. Yeah. Don't you know? It's their partnership with Delara that is the. Um, you know, you're really just buying an entry um, and, you know, some offices, really. It's, um, you know, may make it cheap to buy. Um, I, I would imagine Gene would be happy just to close the doors uh, and pack up and, you know, stay in um, in America um, rather than, you know, feel that he has to sell the team before he quits. And uh, I, I reckon they must have got pretty close this year to having some deep chats about, you know, where where are we going? How long are we going to keep at this? Um, and if so, how are we going to carry on? Yeah, it's um, yeah, it must be very hard for for those guys making decisions. Um, Do you think it'll be difficult um, to for them to pull out next year with the 
with the idea of new rules and the chance that they just might end up with a competitive car. It seems like if they're going to race next year, they'll probably stay for 22 to see what happens. But the question is, is do you want to put that investment into a 2022 car? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, I, know they've, I know they've signed up to the, um, the Concord Agreement and uh, lots of other sort of contractual stuff, but you know that, that's always there just to be broken anyway. But yeah, I mean, I think that I think there's some soul searching to do in that team. Um, and I mean, for me, I think it would be it would be sad to lose them. Um, I think they've been a yeah you know, certainly with Gunther on TV has, have been entertaining. Um, and I, I think it would have been nice to maybe if they brought more American Mataz to the the sport. I don't think that's necessarily been there. But um, yeah, again, I think don't think we, I don't think we're going to lose any team, do we? I can't think of anyone on the grid that we'd be happy to lose. Maybe Mercedes could take a sabbatical. I think I think when uh, when the lineup for the first race in Australia in 2022 and um, they're there as Mazepin Ural Chem Racing, we'll still have a little bit of the old Hass <laughs> with them. <laughs> still think that's going to happen. <laughs> uh, right, we've got um, we've got Alpha next, and again, um, participants just raced each other, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. Fifteenth, fifteenth for Raikkonen and sixteenth for Germanazzi. Um They actually looked like they were having uh, they were having fun out there against each other. Yeah, Raikkonen broke a front wing at some point, didn't he? I can't remember how now. She even actually pushed him into the wall at the beginning of the race somehow. That probably um, wasn't fun. Of it. <laughs> oh dear. Oh dear. <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting actually, isn't it? I mean, I think they've been hobbled a bit by the Ferrari engine and I don't think that their chassis and their, their car performance is really there either. Um, they've kind of they have to take a bit of a step back from the past couple of years when they've looked a little bit more racy under Frederick Vasseur and kind of kind of gave him a bit of a, a rebirth, didn't he? But um, I think the thing you've known on the head, I, I think the two drivers are really enjoying themselves. And I think, you know, like first laps from Kimi and days when it's just, you know, the, the odds are against them, but they've got, you know, slippery conditions or something. And Kimi just pulls a drive out from nowhere. I, I think they are enjoying themselves. Um, I don't know what their lineup will be for next year, but um, same again, isn't it? Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, they've both been confirmed. Oh right, oh yeah, because yeah, Giovinazzi was confirmed this weekend, wasn't he? I forget about that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of a little bit sad um, to see them kind of struggling and not being they're, they're that 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 they're that sort of bottom half of the midfield, really, aren't they? They're kind of they're a bit of the tail enders with Haas and Williams, um, which is a bit sad, but I think. I think you know the, the driver performances really have been the standout thing for for Alpha, um, yeah, amongst themselves last weekend, but in other races, just you know, suddenly bringing it on. Yeah, because I mean, there's been times like, oh, there's an Alpha in the points. How did that happen? Well, oh, there must have been <laughs> holding things back. I think they're one that yes. aren't afraid to try a slightly different, um, what do you call it, strategy mm. as well, which which can help sometimes or hinder. Yeah. Yeah, but it's, it, it's like the tyre war. One's going to be right, one's going to be wrong. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, when you've got somebody like Giovinazzi, who, um, the best way to describe him is terrible at qualifying, but amazing at starting. I think this this was the first race this season he's not gained places off the line. Right, okay. No, I believe the last race he managed that. But then when he qualified in the top ten, he, he lost places on the first lap hmm. in Turkey. And then you see Kimi doing some of those... You know, like the, the, uh, the couple of races ago, that wet start, wasn't it? I mean, mm. 
<laughs> you can just see where a bit, a bit of, a bit of enthusiasm and a, a, um, an opportunity and some experience just really pay off, and it's just, you know, just going to go past everyone, uh, even if I then get in their way for a few laps while they overtake me. But well, you take, you take the moments of glory when you get them, don't you? <laughs> And when you get old, you know, the few and far between, as I'm well aware before anyone says anything. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Where are we next? Williams. Um, George Russell in 12th and Nicholas Latifi in 14th. Um, A better weekend, much better weekend for Latifi than uh, than it was in Turkey. Where he, I mean, he could not handle the the conditions. Um, But this week seemed to do do quite a lot better. Um... Was looking was looking racy at various points, and unfortunately, both six behind them. I'm just trying to think where where the uh, the, the final order. So the Alphas um, and Magnuson were behind Latifi, yeah. and Vettel yeah. was in between them, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Russell finishes ahead of Vettel again. <laughs> it's it's hard it's hard to get your head around it, isn't it? Um, you just wouldn't believe it if you wrote that a couple of years ago. I mean, Williams, you know, I, I think that that Russell's driving performance definitely stands out, doesn't it? Um, I think that Latifi maybe has his moments, but he you know, doesn't seem to be coping too well with his with his first season. And let's face it, the Williams it, it's no no jewel of a car, is it? Um, you know, I think they're probably helped by the fact that it's still kind of pushed along by the Mercedes power unit rather than anything else. I mean, God forbid they had a Ferrari engine in that, that car this year. Oh, you'd be, um, you'd be timing them with a calendar. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they'll, they'll be they'll be finishing the, the last weekend's Bahrain race just as next weekend starts. Um, yeah, it's yeah, and again, you know, I mean, I, you know. I, I, I often feel that I talk Williams down when we, we have our chats, and it, it's, it, it comes from a place of love for the team. Um, but, you know, it wasn't looking great. They've sold the team, and you just, you just get, there's absolutely no feeling that there's something happening in that team that's improving the situation. Um, and they just seem to just be, you know, kind of surfing around. And you know, you know that there's great people in the team back at the factory but it just doesn't it's not being directed anywhere is it it's just so frustrating no um you know now, yeah, now, now they're a wholly owned subsidiary of um yeah, i can't well, remember the, the name Capital. capital, Dor- capital. Dor- <laughs> capital that was it that's it yeah um and when they get bored of putting their money into it and they can't get more investment into it what they yeah it's not like you know frank and patrick who would never let the team go and you know sadly they've never had to now but you know it's like who's who's rooting for them inside the boardroom um <laughs> don't know um uh, yeah uh for next year given the regulation stability <sighs> You know, they, they may close up, but I don't think they're going to make they're going to position to make a quantum leap. But there just isn't the the scope um, in the regulations to do so. I don't think for them. No, yeah, very sad. Yeah, it was it was kind of one of these um, McLaren's first season with Honda saying, you know, don't look for us at the start, but look for us at the end. I think the Williams one is don't look for us at the start of the regulations, but maybe look for us at the end of them. Mm, yeah, we, um, might, we might get to see him score a point next year. <laughs> yes, there's there's always that hope, isn't there? Yes, they, I mean, they have become Minardi. <laughs> uh, I was thinking Tyrrell actually, but I think t- 
um, you know, I think Tyrrell soldiered on under Ken for, for many years with a, quite a bit of fight in them. And I don't think they ever really, um, until the very end, kind of really gave up on doing something. I just don't, I don't see that level of fight in Williams. And it just, it really, it really irks me that you, you know, there isn't that passion in there. Um, but, um, yeah, again, maybe there's stuff going on in the background that they're going to, you know, they're regrouping and planning big things for 2022. And it's just, but they're not coming out with it. You know, you, you don't, you almost don't see anyone from Williams stood in front of the camera be, being um, passionate about this whole thing. And, um, you know, I, I don't know how you can recover the situation when you've got that kind of attitude. Yeah, I mean, all we've, all we've had out of the team since um, since the buyout is very corporate-sounding press releases. And, yeah. you know, you know more more corporate speak than, um, than your average Ferrari or Ron Dennis one. Yeah, which, which again, doesn't doesn't bode well does it when we go back to our kind of corporate chat about <laughs> how, how you need to run an f1 team uh yeah it's not it's not good so yeah, fingers crossed there is stuff that we just can't see under the surface mm. here's, here's hoping uh right ferrari next up vettel in 13th uh splitting the williams and leclerc in 10th vettel just wants this season to be over and done with totally yeah, I, mean, I think if he could have parked that car, I think he would have, if he could have found an excuse. And I'd love to hear the radio call from some Italian accent saying, just just bring the car in. <laughs> <Some God's laughs> stop this, stop this, this pain that you're putting us through. Um, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, you've always got to be really careful when you want to sound optimistic about Ferrari because you, you, um, you want that affirmation. Uh, that they're, they're saying the right things and you hear stuff in the Italian press about this new engine is incredible and it's like how much of that can we believe yeah, are there at the situation now where they think their 2021 engine is going to be incredible uh, I don't know it sounds like Italian press being Italian press um, when they're in the optimistic rather than the pessimistic uh, attacking Ferrari mode um yeah, you know, we kind of spoke a bit about it earlier, didn't we? Um, Ferrari, I mean, their performance at the moment, yeah, I think, is simply down to a bit of the driver's motivation. You can see Leclerc is really pushing hard, trying to do stuff, but, you know, the car is, is the limitation and how the car treats its tyres. With Vettel, it's, you know, it's completely at sea. Uh, hopefully, they, they, they can improve for next year, but last weekend like many weekends and i don't think the the f- super fast circuit of bahrain next week is is going to flatter them either oh the um, um, the squovel as we've christened it <laughs> whatever you call it yeah. <laughs> um, yeah it's um it's it's funny how a team can drop literally as you say being split by the williams which is you know um sadly these days is is nothing to, to shout about you know <laughs> in the 80s or the 90s that would have been you know a, a privileged position um but yeah you know being the tail enders is just a bizarre situation from where we were last year it's yeah um i mean i, I know a lot of ferrari fans who um have been very quiet on social media this year yeah, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's hilarious, isn't it? And from, a, and from a personal point of view, it's been great not to see it. 
Uh, right, Alpha Tori next. Um, Gasly in a very good sixth, and Kvyat in eleventh after causing two retirements. I mean, Kvyat just all right. One, well, one everything, wasn't, one wasn't his fault, but <laughs> I don't think either were his fault. Yeah, to be I, fair, I disagree with the, pe- well, the penalty. On stroll one, I mean, I think that was yeah, that was a that was a bold move. Um, I don't think the re- I don't think what he did. Um, was bad enough to cause the accident that it actually did, but I think it, no. I think it was certainly, you know, uh, close to a racing incident, if not more, heard on his side of, of fault. But um, yeah, but he, he had a really, he looked really strong through the early part of the weekend, didn't he? It was one, it was, like it was one of those weekends where he was kind of on it, um, but all kind of fizzled out through the race. Um, although he's having some some great little tussles, which is again. I think that midfield, everyone battling amongst themselves, is, has been the entertainment this year. But again, I think you know that just shows that that you know, that, that Alpha Tori is a really useful little car, um, and actually remind again brings back to mind maybe Tyrrells again. You know, maybe even some days Minardi's, where it was just like a real proper little fighty race car that you could really kind of get stuck into. And Gasly has absolutely reveled in it this year, um, and. Um, you know, I, I think that this is probably their best year that I think I can probably ever remember. You know, yep. notwithstanding the fact that they've actually won a Grand Prix, um, um, and I, I, I think that's great. You know, because you know, they are still, uh, yeah. You see the, the videos with with Franz Tost and everything. You can still see that that despite their, their links to Red Bull, they're still an independent little race team, aren't they? Um, and uh, you know, seeing Gasly's confidence, I think, is a really good thing as well. Um, so hopefully that can maybe roll into next year as well. Yeah, I mean, he, he he really suits the car, and it's great to know that he's going to be driving it next year as well. Yeah. And obviously the question is who's going to be in the other car, but that change that seems to change from hour to hour. <laughs> yes. <laughs> is uh, um, yeah, Red Bull driver decisions are completely unfathomable, aren't they? Yeah, I, mean, well, I wonder whether um, Gasly's performance in in Torosa this year will make Red Bull keep Albon and give him another year, because obviously Red Bull just can't keep doing this, you know, throwing drivers back and forwards. So it's, at some point they've got to stick with someone, and even if they're the having a tr- rumor, isn't mm. it? yeah, even if they're having a troubled season, they've got to give them another another season just to see if they can if they can cope with it. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I think there, there, there's a lot of um, sense in that argument. I think also the argument that they signed Perez would be um, really good for them. Um, I think that that would be really rewarding for them. But again, yeah, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with Albon as a race driver. I mean, we've seen some fantastic moves from him, mm-hmm. some good drives. But he was good last year when he when he just walked into the team. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think it is this year's car. It just isn't working with him. Uh, and even early in the season, Max was struggling with it. Um, I think yeah, Max is one of those drivers that adapts um, maybe better than, than um, Albon's able to. Um, but I think if, you know, I think if Albon and Gasly were both in the Alpha Tauri, I don't think there'd be much between them, frankly. I don't think, you know, Albon is a, a spent force in F1 at all. So, um but Red Bull, they're just weird with their drivers, aren't they? It's just, <laughs> you know, um, you know, they, they they make all of this noise about being, you know, having this, you know, academy bringing everyone up. But at the same time, they don't put that, you know, arm around them and give the drivers what they need in the ways that perhaps 
other teams are, are better at doing. Yeah, I mean, we found out not so long back that um, the drivers are actually just contracted to the Red Bull organisation, and it's Helmut Marko that decides who goes in what car, and he can change his mind at any given point. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's part of it, and I think you know, Marco is a an interesting character, that's, shall we say? That's putting uh, it in a way that won't get us sued. The founder of COVID, yes, <laughs> uh, yes, um, but you know, maybe, maybe there needs to be another person in on that <laughs> decision making <laughs> process. Maybe someone that is more a people person. I think, shall we say? Um, <laughs> A bit more of a you know, a bit more psychology in there than than helmets. Yeah, you know, he can clearly see talent, but I don't think he's the right necessarily the right person to kind of nurture it in the way that that some drivers need. Mm, or as uh, Christian Horner called him, and he said this on uh, Beyond the Grid: the strange Austrian doctor with one eye. Yeah, that's reasonable. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> not sure if that tells us very much about his character, but yeah, I mean it's. <laughs> Physically, it's accurate. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know exactly who he's talking about when he says that. <laughs> they only they only met him for the first time to buy a trailer off him, and then ends up running the team. Yes. <laughs> uh, where are we next? Renault, Danny Rick in seventh, and Ocon in ninth. I thought that Renault were going to be better in Bahrain. I don't know why. I just think that they've 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 had a really good showing for a lot of this year. And I just feel they don't. They, I don't know if they didn't get the opportunity to show it, but I feel like you know in the, they're in that fight for third place in the champion in the um, constructor standings with McLaren and Racing Point. And McLaren kind of you know left them behind, as did Racing Point until their retirements. Yeah, it's strange. I mean, I think that there is this ebb and flow in the midfield, and I think Renault have been coming on really strong over the past few races. Um, obviously, summit in the conditions um, last weekend just didn't didn't work out for them. It, it could be different with a different layout next weekend, or maybe that the the, the the tarmac and the heat on doesn't work with their car. Um, I, I'm thinking that probably high speed tracks are maybe the slightly better um, uh, sort of circuit than high downforce ones. Um, but I, I, again, I think when you Look at Renault. I think they have made huge strides this year, and again, makes you feel really sort of confident for next year. But then you, there is this sort of the, the driver question. I think losing losing Danny could be um, uh, sort of quite quite poor for them. Um, I think you know he's very much a, a star in that car, and um, I'm, I, I've again I, I'm maybe not the best best driver. Thing, but I, I've not seen much from Ocon that really kind of makes you feel he's the guy. Um, no. Forwards. no, I think if they want a French driver in that car, Gasly's going to be a good call for that seat at the end of next year. Mm. Do you do you think that um, losing all their customer teams when, McLa- uh, when McLaren go next year, that's going to cause problems with them because they're not going to have as much engine data to work from? Is that going to, is that going to play with their development think, in a bad way? I think where we're at now, I don't think that is... It, when... The, the, the development curve on these engines is very much kind of flattening off from where we've been at. I think they've still got a bit bit more work to do to kind of catch Mercedes, but I think they're they're a lot closer this year in performance and certainly with reliability than they have been for, for some time. So I think maybe in some respects it's actually better for them um, because, again, finally you're getting the feel that Renault are really focusing on this. Um 
maybe not as much as perhaps I'd like them to, to sort of feel wholly committed to really blitzing F1. But I think they're, they are certainly going very much the sort of the right direction at the moment with, with commitment uh, and with how their development has been kind of proving to, to bring performance to the car. So, yeah, I, I, I think next year could could be a good thing for them just to, just to properly focus on the factory team and, um, you know, getting them there at the sharp end of the midfield. I mean, the, the worry is every time Renault look like they're going to start blitzing F1, um, the company decides to pull out for another five years. Yeah, I mean that that you you have to say that that is a huge risk at the moment, isn't it? I mean, I think the fact that they have committed through to next year and they are talking about engine freezes and stuff bodes slightly well. But it's not the people making those noises that make the big final decisions. It's the uh, the guys in the boardroom, isn't it? Mm. Um, and um, I mean, I, I I don't know the characters that are involved there, but yeah, quite easily they could be going through a really great year, middle of next year, and. Um, gone by the end of the year and then we have another, the Enstone team get rebranded as something else you know maybe Benetton are going to come back I know they're coming back into fashion at the moment so uh, <laughs> maybe it's some retro liv- liveries from them or something oh, um, this could be Eddie Jordan's chance for his comeback that he keeps threatening oh Christ is, has, has he been uh, if he has I've, I've missed that story I he joked about it didn't he I don't think he was about, being I, serious I, yeah he keeps joking about uh, I should be running a team again <laughs> he's like oh god no yeah I, I think <laughs> I'm surprised how much he's changed in those years um, yeah um, but yeah, fingers crossed that Renault do, do stay committed um, to engine supply and you know a, a factory race team because I think it would be hard for anyone else to come in with the funding to, to create a race, to keep running that race team, um, uh, other than a manufacturer at the moment, I think, where, where F1 is. So, yeah, fingers crossed. But, you know, again, they've, they've, they've had a strong year. They've had some great race performances, some fantastic manoeuvres. Um, you know, obviously, when Danny's, Danny's feeling the tyres are on his side and the brakes are on his side, I mean, it, it's it's you know great watching him race. Um he seems, he seems a lot more seems a lot more comfortable in the car than he did last year. Yeah, I mean, I think he has. I think he has settled in, and I think obviously that the car is much better this year. Um, you know, he's very much one of these drivers that needs to feel the brakes and the way he likes it, and get the car to work to do his kind of trademark. You know, send it down the inside, uh, and I, I think if we saw at the weekend, he, you know, he can do that when when the tires are, are working for him now. So um, yeah, yeah. We've got a couple of couple of weekends. See if he can um, some, some pull some some big results out there because it's it's the potential is in the car definitely. It certainly is. Uh, right, McLaren next. Lando in fourth. Carlos in fifth. Another another strong showing. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I mean, I think it was thoroughly deserved. Uh, I think you know the writing's been on the wall all year this year that the you know the McLaren is a is a good racing car. Uh, I think the, the driver pairing has been fantastic. Probably one of the best on the grid. Um, yeah, I'd agree. A bit, a little sad that that, that Carlos will be leaving the team, but um, you know, I think that's <laughs> kind of counteracted by the uh, the replacement, and uh, be interesting to see how Carlos works with with Charles at Ferrari. That's going to be uh, be an interesting one. I think we saw a few tussles during the race, didn't we? Um, but yeah, I mean, McLaren is completely on it at the moment, aren't they? You know, um, and uh, this weekend. They, they got the results and the points that they you know they really needed 
to uh, really consolidate their position in the constructors. Yeah, I mean, Carlos getting the car from 15th on the grid to, mm-hmm. uh, to 5th over the line. I think any other day yeah. he probably would have been driver of the day. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, again, I've... Uh, again, um, I've, I, I find Carlos can be a little bit inconsistent, but on the days when he's, he's you know, he's, he's, someone's found the on switch, I mean, he really is fantastic. Um, I think it's just a case of, you know... Sometimes with these drivers, a bit like with Felipe, with um, with Smedley, you you've got to find someone that can bring that out in them. And hopefully, you know, a Ferrari with a better car next year uh, and uh, the right race engineer, we, you know, we can see some absolute fireworks from a pair of drivers in that team. Um, yeah, it would be good to see Ferrari can get their acting gear with uh, with that lineup. I'm, yeah. you know, I'm looking looking forward to seeing it. I mean, it will be squandered. They'll be squandered in a bad car, you know, which is which is sad. Um, but likewise, um, you know, uh, an even more improved McLaren next year, Norris with a bit more experience, you know, they could be, you know, they could be a really, really strong team and uh, be interesting. You know, I suppose there is the potential that they could span that gap and, you know, replace Ferrari and be the, you know, the third big team. Mm. You know, they've been there before. Um, albeit it's a very different team than the one they are now, but you know that's their trajectory at the moment. So if they don't screw up the um, the off season, which we've got no reason to believe they would do. Um, it's looking good. Well, I mean they're concentrating on the team now because they're pulling out the uh, the cycling team, aren't they? At the end of the year. Yeah. So, which is a shame. I was hoping to get a McLaren bike. Then again, I don't have a spare thirty grand. Yeah, I don't think they were cheap. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, right, then we have Red Bull, who we've got as a second-place team, Max in second, Albon in an inherited third, but he was he was close to Perez when uh, when the engine yeah, blew. Yeah, I, mean, I, yeah, I think it was a, a, a probably um, a, a much more convincing drive from Albon, I think, this weekend. I mean, he wasn't with Max, but you know, I think he possibly could have snatched third, given a bit more time without Perez's failure. Um but really, I mean, that should be the minimum you would be expecting of him. And, um, you know, it, it, you saw him overdriving throughout the weekend. And it's just really kind of frustrating that, you know, he can't really show his racecraft in that car. Um, and fingers crossed, obviously, for him for next year, because that's obviously, you know, as we've sort of said. But again, you know, I think the thing that's quite interesting is Max has become very consistent. And that's not really what you would describe of Max Verstappen over the past few years. He's, yeah, he really has kind of matured. And, you know, as much as he does kind of get a bit barky on the radio when he doesn't like the tyres and the sort of strategy he's sort of stuck in. But in terms of just being there, getting in amongst the Mercedes and qualifying and being a threat to them through the race, he's done it, you know, without fireworks. And I think that is really interesting. Um, and again, shapes up for a 2021 that could be, you know, really, really quite big in terms of if Red Bull and Honda can bring the race to Mercedes, um, head to head with, with, uh, Lewis could be, could be spectacular. I mean, I think I it could, was... could, could be incendiary in some respects, but let's, let's, uh, let's not <laughs> worry about that too much. Yeah. I thought it was quite um, refreshing to hear Max, not for the first time this season, 
you know, saying it's uh, we have nothing to lose. Let's go full send. Very rarely do you hear of a Formula One driver like giving their giving themselves and their car a hundred percent, you know, d- maximum power all the time just to try and you know get yeah. as close to the front as possible. Um, I know there are a lot of fans who think that's how Formula One should be. It should be driving on the limit all the time. But I mean, there's always been a there's always been a managing element to the sport as well, but but that was it was it was nice to hear that, that there was somebody literally going all hell for leather, um, yeah, you know, to try and catch a Mercedes. Well, let's face it. I mean, the the, the championship is you know um, fairly fixed. You know, there's a bit of a battle still left there for for, for Max. But again, it's like you know, it's um, when you look for a, a, the right driver for the team. You know, there's lots of things in terms other than just simply being fast, but you can see him leading that team. You could imagine if next year, if you know, he was alongside Lewis in a car that's almost equal, Max leading Red Bull to push ahead, you know, with strategy in the race, with the car generally just motivating everyone around him. That's, yeah. you know, he's still a, he's still a very young guy. Um, but again, you're seeing some of these traits in him that are like, you know, way beyond you know, his, his years in terms of, as I say, like his consistency this year, as you pointed out, his team leadership qualities, his, you know, how he wants to be aggressive, but not in a, maybe not an aggressive <laughs> way he's driven in the past, mm. you know, uh, more emotionally and uh, strategically aggressive than just physically aggressive on the track with the car. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, you know, sadly he's in a race on his own most of the time with the Mercedes, you know, pretty much, you know, beyond his control luckily he does split them quite a bit but it's rare that we really see him tussling with him and he's just in a kind of his own little battle with his tires and um, where the mercedes are ending up with each other um and that's really kind of underplayed you know what i think where him and that car have got to this year it just you know it you're not seeing those flashes of excitement because as i say he's on his own most of the time isn't he <laughs> I think um, it's like the maturity of Verstappen. It's it's easy to forget how long he's been around now, though, isn't it? You know, because he came in so young. Mm. You know, he's actually got a few years of experience under his belt within Formula One. I think that mm. that's odd for somebody that's so young. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, you know, if you think of where Lewis is at with his career, um, and, you know, there will be a sunset to that no doubt, you know, not that long away. Um, rule changes. Um, and, you know, we, we could have another era of, era of dominance because I think Max has got everything lined up to um, to deliver that. I don't, you know, he, he has some weaknesses, but I think he's worked on a lot of them already. Um, and, um, you know, it, it, it bodes very well for the future of the sport. You know, and there's lots of other, you know, particularly fasty drivers coming through at the moment. That um, you know could be pushing him as well. So, you know, the potential future of Formula One from a driver perspective, I mean, the kind of the post Lewis and uh, I hate to say it, but the post Vettel era, even though he's carrying on, um, is 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 quite exciting. I'd argue that the uh, from what we've seen of Max lately, the only real weakness he's got is what Red Bull keep giving him every weekend. Yeah, and again, that's um, you know that's kind of a bit of a slow burn thing, and you know equally, you know if Rebel are still fighting against the might of Mercedes, which is you know a hugely impressive operation, um, 
Uh, but yeah, you know, these these are learning years. They're building years. So let's let's see what the you know hopefully the the final result is that we see you know Max racing with um, either dominating the sport or you know, in a big battle with someone else to uh, win championships, which I think yeah. would be fantastic. We did see Albon have quite a big crash on Friday and then Red Bull had to do a chassis change. How big an impact does that have on the driver when they start the weekend in one car and then essentially have something very different the next day? I think it does It does vary by team and, and car, which is not really an answer. But um, some drivers are very sensitive to the, the tub and they have a favourite tub, whether that is a superstition or just something that the engineers can't measure but the driver feels um i again um i think where where albans at with the team i think that would have been a big knock for him that weekend because it's you know it's his confidence he's getting back into a car that's been rebuilt you lose track time um so yeah so that that i think for particular i think that would have been you know bad for his weekend um and I think you know, his final result of fourth elevated to third, I think his is is reward for his uh, commitment um, to to get you know, to trying to get a result out of that bloody car of his. Um, but yeah, I was I was somewhat surprised. You know, look at it. You know, it, was, it was one of those accidents that looks big because it rips lots of bits off. But when you again, when you kind of get a, 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 an old person like me look at it it's seen accidents like that before it's like, oh yeah that's fine that will polish out put some new suspension on it will be fine but the chassis was 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 damaged and that was a surprise to me and that is a big job for the mechanics um and um again that you know as much as they are committed to getting all the work done and they work very late with their uh, breaking the curfew to do so uh was fantastic but I'm, sure, I'm sure it doesn't do very well for the atmosphere in the garage uh, when someone's consistently bringing back smashed up cars um, and, uh, you know, not bringing the results with it at the same time. So, yeah, you know, it's um, I think it's it's tough for everyone when that happens. But it seemed like an accident from overdriving, didn't it? I mean, he just shouldn't have been out there. He shouldn't have been putting his foot down when he was. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, the conversations that quite a few of us were having on um, on Discord this weekend was he's trying too hard. Yeah, and I think yeah, that that's always the danger when you know you get a bit desperate. Um, I mean, and that was there's there's a little bit of overdriving and there's a bit of aggression that you can have, and then there was you know you're several meters off the track on sand. Don't <laughs> don't put your foot in it. You know, it's quite obvious what was going to happen. Mm. But um, yeah, red mist, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's it's how you recover from things like that that are the measure of a good driver, and whether you can take something away and learn from it, and hopefully you can, because you know I don't, I, you know, I'd like to see, still see him in Formula One. He's proved that he's worthy of being there. You know, he's definitely he's mm. definitely got the skills for it. Um, it it's just it's the psychological thing now. He needs to be able to handle the pressure, and as we've seen countless times, being on the Red Bull program can break people that you think are actually stronger yeah i mean it, it, it's literally he needs a more sympathetic economy if maybe he needs a more sympathetic management um uh, to bring it out of him and maybe red bull isn't the environment for him so him losing his seat assuming he can get another good seat and i can't think of any that are probably up for grabs but um 
yeah, I mean, I think it is at the moment. I think it's squandering some talent that is definitely there. It's just to see, you know, how far could he go with a car that he, um, you know, he can he can feel fully confident in. Yeah. Maybe in a resurgent Williams once George Russell's moved up to Mercedes. <laughs> yeah, it's funny when I when you, when you talk about you know teams that are good at dealing with drivers like that. Williams historically have been that team, but again, it's it's not the team it used to be. Um, uh, from um, a human's perspective, let alone you know the, um, the performance of the car, and it's like, you know, who who are the team that are good at you know getting into a driver's head and getting them working? Um, yeah, um, not sure who that is at the moment. Say, is, is, is there such a thing now? Maybe not. Maybe, maybe there isn't. I mean, maybe Alpha Tori, you could argue, but that's still kind of somewhat tied to the Red Bull program. Um, yeah, it's um, just kind of thinking down the grid now. There isn't, there isn't a kind of a, a cuddly team, uh, perhaps like there used to be. Possibly Alfa Romeo because it's still under Sauber management and Fred Bosser is good with people. But he's a pretty straightforward guy. Yeah, maybe that is the team. Yeah, maybe you're right. I think that could be the one, um, for better or worse. But yeah, it's um, maybe there used to be a couple of teams that you could rely on. Um, you maybe just doesn't come across so much nowadays. Finishing school for fragile drivers. <laughs> mm. uh, right, that just leaves Mercedes. Um, Hamilton doing his usual. Mm. Um, puts his foot down, gets the gap. Done. Um, Bottas struggled with tyres. Um, think the Grosjean crash really threw him as well. Um, yeah. Everyone got confused by the um, three tyres being changed at one stop, but I've since seen the, seen the explanation for that. And that was the set that he started on, less the front right that he punctured. Oh, I see. Oh, wrong. Although, <laughs> although if anyone, anyone saw the three tyre change, um, the guys on the front right tyre mimed doing a change. <laughs> the wheel gun guy went forward... And the two tyre guys mimed taking off and putting on. Because they didn't know what else to do. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. It's practice, isn't it? Yeah. You, know, you, don't, you don't skip it's an like, opportunity oh. to practice. Because obviously, yeah, it would it would seem very odd for everyone else. Bear in mind, it's not just the tyre people, but the people with the jacks and the uh, chief mechanic letting the car with the traffic lights out of the thing. It probably was more um, comforting for them to see what looked like a stop on that tyre. Um, the not because you know it's you know, pit stops is there's lots of technology being thrown in but at the end of the day it's very much a human operation isn't it and I think it's the the human aspect that's bringing these stops down to sub you know regularly sub two seconds um, so yeah that yeah that, that, that yeah there's probably psychologists that could write a thesis to stop on that aspect of that pit stop it's quite interesting isn't it it's mm. um, you know um, so you don't re- you don't really get people drilling into what goes on to actually get a good pit stop um you know we just kind of take it for granted but you know it's an it's an incredible feat if you think about what they do um and uh, you know how far can they go before they do kind of re- start restricting um some of the, the the tech that they can use and the number of people that they can use you know one and a half seconds Oof. i mean a stop that fast is unthinkable and i don't, I don't know if it's even physically possible I mean, I think. Um, I mean, you are getting you you are getting 
into you know, we say it all the time when they were like three seconds oh it's diminishing response diminishing returns but um yeah but i mean i think if you think about it just bring into a car to a halt and then accelerating away again i mean that must take half a second just to do it without anyone touching the car <laughs> it's like, it's um yeah it's it's yeah it's an extraordinary piece of um sort of theater that they add to the race and i'm you know i'm very much against refueling but i think pit tire pit stops i've got absolutely no issue with them staying as long as they you know, the car can be released safely yeah i mean you, you look at a stop from four or five years ago and the car was actually fully stopped before the wheel gun went on mm-hmm. now the gun is on while the car's yeah, still pulling the into tire the tire as it comes in don't you yeah. so that you're connecting while it's still moving it's impressive shit it really is. It's almost like a visual trick. When you watch it, it feels like the car hasn't actually stopped, but the car has gone into the first mechanic's hands, who then takes the tyre off. And it's almost as though the car is still moving as the guy puts the next tyre on. There's a kind of a continuity of movement in your in the, your eyesight as you're seeing it. And it's literally like the car has passed through the pits, had tyres changed, never stops and goes straight back out again. It's like it hasn't stopped. It's... Um, it's um it's you know absolutely amazing um sort of feat mid-race um and uh really amazing just to be able to really drill into how the teams do that you know the technology and the, the psychology and the fitness and everything it's um it is amazing. A couple of years, a couple of years ago, the record was two point one, wasn't it? It's now down to one point eight. So I don't think that one point five is is maybe as far away as Paul thinks it is. I mean, we were, we were watching the race yesterday, obviously, and we, we noticed a couple of the Ferrari stops looked really leisurely and really slow. And uh, understandable, long race, hot desert. Obviously, towards the end of the race, people were getting a bit tired, but they were only like 3.2. But to watch when you're used to seeing that the Red Bull sub two second pit stop, it just looked so slow. Yeah, yeah I think, I think yeah. You, you described the Leclerc stop as leisurely. Yeah, it was. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, well, all right, Ferrari, don't, don't, you know, don't bust a sweat or anything jesus but mm. yeah 3.2 <laughs> it's insane <laughs> we just have to try and work out what the the, the next uh, thing they can do is to speed it up it's um you know it's uh, uh lots of little nuanced bits in there that I've, I've watched over the years and you see how it's all developed um and uh, every time you see something else that they've tried and it's like oh yeah and thought of that so that they must have a few other things in their back pocket that they think they could maybe do, um, and to, to bring that down further, because um, I think you must be at the limit of human ability to do that. So there must be something else that they need to um, do to either get the wheels on or off, or the car jacks up quicker, um, <laughs> or not stopping at all. As I said, as it. <laughs> yeah, we all remember how well that went in two thousand and five. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, Bottas's performance on Sunday. I think um, you said earlier, Craig. He, he seemed to be seemed to be troubled by what he'd seen in his mirrors, and it sort of shook him for the rest of the race. And he, he was never really there, and he was just having incredibly bad luck with uh, with punctures constantly. Mm. I, think, I think he ended up having three altogether. Oof. Uh, that could be right. I must remember exactly. But um, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think we see this a lot sometimes. If the Merc does fall down the order, 
um, it does sometimes struggle. I mean, he kind of pulled it in, pulled it out for qualifying, didn't he? Which was a, quite an impressive lap to um, to get it into to P two. Obviously, that start was was kind of the start of his woes, really, wasn't it? Um, but again, you know, I sometimes when you look at what Mercedes could be capable of with two blisteringly good drivers. Um, you know, it's it's you know you kind of scares you a little bit to some respect, but um, yeah, I I I feel that you know we're, we're not going to see a a really a better Bottas going forwards. You know, I mean, I think what we've seen for the past few years, you know, that as much as we talk about Bottas 2.0 and all of this sort of thing, you know, I think he's 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 operating at his limit now. I think, and um, you know that maybe works well for the team dynamic within within Mercedes, much like it has done in lots of other teams when there's been a de facto kind of number one, even if it's never really come put out as, as that. But yeah, um, it, it's kind of, you know, Bottas, when he arrived at Williams, there was sort of so much optimism that he would be an outstanding driver. And he is, you know, no, no disrespect, he is a, a good driver, but I don't think he's, you know, in that sort of very top... Um, group of, of drivers uh in the sport at the moment and um you know it's uh you know just takes a little bit of the shine off it i think in some respects mm. um and you know meanwhile not to not to take it away from from lewis his he's going through that phase you know obviously he's not been going for many many years but he's completely comfortable in the team and he's just honing as i think paddy lowe was saying when he won the championship you know he's all those little things that were weak spots of him um uh yeah when you're winning and winning and winning and especially when you're not getting too much pressure you really can as we saw with Vettel really kind of polish that winning approach um both as a driver and also equally as the team as well because they can approach their weekend differently knowing you're going to get pole position really alters how you literally it alters how you design the car and where you choose to put your performance into the car um and again, from Lewis, I mean, it was a you know a, a faultless performance. They, they managed the tyres, um, coped with you know all the other stuff going on around the race weekend, and faultless performance. I mean, yeah. <laughs> what that's, can anyone else? Do? That's that's all you can say, really. What I'm really interested in seeing. Um, this is the thing that I think I'm looking forward to the most in 2022 because part of the regulations are designed around cars being able to follow each other a lot better. Mm. And we've said for ages, and Martin Brundle gave credence to this on Sunday by saying exactly the same thing, that Mercedes don't build a car that's designed to follow. How are they going to be able to cope with that when that's what the rules say effectively the car must be? Now, that's going to be a bit yeah. of a culture shock for them. Yeah, I don't know if that's a chicken or egg sort of situation. Um... Uh, if anything, looking at it from the way I, I think it will work and how teams think, it will work in their favour in that they will already design a very fast car because um, yeah, that's what they're set up to do. But what they potentially could find is if they they could actually also have a car that's good in traffic, which I think may, be well, may well be for the first time in many, many years. Um, and that's a bit worrying. So even when they do have an off weekend or just one of those situations where they're not at the front, if they can now finally fight through the, a, a, a tough grid, um, Jesus, I mean, we're not going to see we're not going to see them for dust, are we? Mm. It could actually be 
slightly negative. I, I see your point, and I can see the way the way the logic works, but I think I think it could actually be you know counterproductive to uh, a more even grid. Well, uh, yeah, is it is a worry that you know. Mercedes being so far ahead this year, I mean, they stopped the car development really early. They're already looking at next year's car. No doubt they've got a massive program looking at the 2022 car. Um, it could be, you know, 2014 all over again that they're just, you know, a, a full stride ahead of everyone else, um, which, uh, you know, you, you have to applaud them. Um, and uh, But I, I don't know if that is necessarily good for F1. But look at the way that Mercedes think about these things as well. When they banned the party modes, was it earlier this year? They said no more, no more um, party modes. Every every race had to be, uh, every you know from from part Fermi, your rate your your engine mode had to stick with you unless there was a you know an imminent failure. You're allowed to downgrade, but you can't upgrade um, throughout the race. Um, Mercedes' response to that was, for, well, "How are you going to cope for that next year?" And the response was, "Well, we'll have to work out how to use party mode all the time." Yeah. <laughs> and again, you know, the, the advantage they have is that because they are that step ahead, they're ahead of the curve of everyone else. You know, Red Bull and yeah, particularly Ferrari have got a huge amount of catching up to do from this year. Um, Mercedes are like striding ahead. Let's let's look at the next big thing. You know, that's how you can develop big things like you know the DAS uh, steering setup that you can you know, force the bodywork into the shapes that they've been able to do with side pods this year, that they've been able to get so much performance out of the engine when we thought it had plateaued and they really dug deep for the engine this year in terms of performance, thinking that the Ferrari engine would be a real challenge, but obviously the regs were tweaked and they've ended up with, you know, an absolutely stonking engine that no one else is even close to. So um, you can't see at what point they're going to trip up until that the leadership of that team start to break up and retire or go to other teams. And at the moment, you know, that's that's unlikely to be happening. You know, you've still got a lot of those people. I know that De Costa, uh, sorry, Costa um, has, uh, is, is stepping away from the team. Um, Andy Cowell um, on the engine side. But I think, you know, they've got enough other people there across the board that you won't feel the loss of them. And there's a lot more heads that would need to disappear before you see that kind of natural erosion of the, the way they do things. Much like we saw with Ferrari, you know, after Ross Braun left, they coped for a few years and then, oh, you're right there. Oh, it, it, it was, it was <laughs> one of the podcasts. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. I thought it was me saying Ross Braun and someone was... <laughs> someone um... has a massive aversion to Ross Braun. <laughs> it's dizzy. That was dizzy. <laughs> Um, yeah, so you know, we you you know, again, we talked about the approach of you know how you run the team, and I think at the end of the day, more than money, more than resources, that's the important thing. That until that changes at Mercedes, I don't see anyone truly overtaking them. I think people will challenge them, and over the course of a year, they may beat them. But I think anyone dominating over Mercedes, I just don't see it's possible in the foreseeable future because of the people that they've got there and how long they're likely to stay which is a bit slightly depressing Mm. but um still as i say we've got lots of lots of uh, lots of midfield actions keep us going in the meantime yeah for any any followers of nfl we've got we've got the new england patriots of f1 (laughs) Uh, i've been holding on to the hopes that usually when you get a big rule shuffle whoever's like on top 
tends to get shuffled backwards. That's what I've been holding on to. <laughs> this was not the news you wanted. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, often that is the case. Um, you know, I think Red Bull would be the, ex- you know, the, the, the nearest example of that. The, you know, the regulation changes for 2014 really kind of cut their advantage. But they were fighting for the championships all through those final years of the uh, the V8 era. And I think that really hampered their ability to develop the 2014 car. Um, and if you remember, actually, the 2014 Red Bull chassis and the Renault engine in particular were both disasters. I mean, that just wasn't what we expected from them because I don't think they put the amount of effort in. Whereas Mercedes, and if you think if you think Mercedes, actually, by the time they got to 2013, I think they'd started to win some races and they'd started to kind of understand the tyre um, uh uh, degradation issues that they were having and it was still pretty severe but they started to understand it yet still they had this massive background operation that basically the whole team was set up uh, by Paddy Lowe to look at 2014 um, almost exclusively away from the race team that were running the car up to 2013 and they got that advantage the problem now is that we're going to come to 2021 and there's a good chance that Lewis is going to win the championship without too much challenge from teammates or rivals, um, which means Mercedes can focus even more effort to 2022. Mm. And uh, yeah, I mean, you're right. There is always that opportunity and there is always the chance that they could screw it up somehow. But somehow, given the rule changes we've had since 2014, which have all been aimed to try and cut back some of Mercedes' advantage, yeah, hasn't dented their armor really, has it? So no. yeah, it's yeah. I'd love to be way more optimistic about this. Um, so if you're a Lewis and a Mercedes fan, this is great. Um, uh, but it just means it's so much harder for everyone else to um, to, to to bring the fight to them. Just what we needed to hear. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that just leaves our usual rock stars and wankers. Um, rock stars. Grosjean. Grosjean, the medical team, the marshals mm-hmm. in sector one. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Um, Perez. Yeah. I'll definitely throw his name in there. Carlos Sainz. Yes. Ten place, yeah. ten place great, getting from the great start. Great drive after, after what happened to him on Saturday uh, to get to very well. So, yeah, we go rock star Carlos Sainz, definitely. Uh, Lando Norris for being super cool about having a marshal run in front of him. <laughs> he was ridiculously calm on the radio about that. Again, saw somebody tweeting that was the most polite meltdown ever. Yep. <laughs> uh, Pierre Gasly, I think deserves an honorable mention. Quiet, understated rock star. I don't think we, given the circumstances of what's happened this weekend and the overbearing headline, I don't think we can really call anyone put anybody in the Gunter Steiner wanker category, can we really, let's be honest Marshall running in front of Lando running across when they shouldn't do um, maybe, yeah. but the there has been, an, I haven't read the explanation, but Michael Massey has been forced to give an explanation for it but yeah, in, in fairness he has, he's had to make a few explanations over the past few races <laughs> of, um, people uh, you know, races going live when maybe they, you know, there's people on the track. So, yeah, I certainly don't want to suggest that he is the, uh, the the bad guy for this weekend. But yeah, I mean, again, lessons lessons should always be learned. And I think we've had at least three races on the trot now with 
um, some question over, you know, race, the racetrack not being safe when it goes live, which is a worry. So, yeah, Marshall's running across the track with fire extinguishers. Anyone that can remember the 70s, and I think it was uh, yeah. early. Mm. Um, yeah, it's it's not on. But the situation at the start of the race, and I think it was actually the, the one of the more senior marshals that did run across the track, knew, he, knew doing so that the rest of the grid had passed him, is okay. But, uh, mm, yeah. But, no, I don't think there's anyone that really needs to have the, uh, the, the, the finger pointed at them. Uh, for this weekend, I don't think anyone's really let the, the side down at all. Oh, one, one of the rock star, Friday's dog. Oh yes, that thing dog. had a hell of a turn of speed. <laughs> <laughs> when you run the road, road, road for his racing car, <laughs> <laughs> like, well, yeah, it, it overtook Latifi. That that was my favourite part of the race weekend. Did anyone see Lando Norris's tweet about the dog? No. He tweeted he tweeted a picture of the dog saying. It felt it felt good on track today. I thought I had good pace. We struggled in sector two, but I'm going to analyse the data and, and push forward to qualify. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lando seems to win Twitter every race weekend. Yeah, he does. He's um, dialed it back a bit from what it was in his first season, but you know he's, he still comes out with the gems. Quality over quantity. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I think we've been uh, we've been talking for wow two and a quarter hours. Craig, okay. thank thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's always oh, great when you come on. Always great fun. Yeah, um, uh, lots lot to talk about this weekend, oh, wasn't there? Say, oh yes. Yeah, when um, be much simpler, and it's like oh yeah, Lewis won. Some other people with some racing. That's it. Game over. Yeah, well, there was a lot of technical stuff to talk about. You were the first person that we turned to, and I can't thank you enough for uh, for joining us uh, for this week. Uh, yeah, let's hope we don't have any more weekends like that. Absolutely. Definitely. And uh, you fancy joining us in a few weeks' time for uh, for a season review? We can look back on um, what the teams have done, technical advancements, anything like that? No, absolutely. It sounds great. That would be brilliant. Um, just to let you know, there's uh, the extra Patreon show out there. If you go to patreon.com slash three legs, four wheels, um, you can sign up there for um, as little as $1, £1 and €1 Euro a month. Um, if you want to hear some of Lee's stand-up comedy, Lee, what's the Musty Audio Patreon address? If you go to Musty Audio on Patreon, you can sign up to my patron there and you can listen to me tell jokes. <coughs> and um, if you want to send in a total shunt, which we haven't had time to do this week, um, how would you go about doing that? Uh, send me a PM on social media at a total shunt on Instagram and Twitter. Then if you want to drop us, drop us an email or get an emergency shunt in on the list, you can go old school, three legs, four wheels at gmail.com. Um, we're also on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at three legs, four wheels. And individually, we all are... At Sean Cowper. At Flood21. At Pablo100. And Craig. At Scarbs Tech. That is great. Once again, thank you so much, Craig. And uh, we will see you all next week when we'll find out what the Squovel has to offer. Mm. <laughs> right, see you later. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye now.